Do you eat candy? Do you eat podcasts? Well, then you're in luck, myself. And myself. We have a new show that we want you to check out called Candy is Dandy, the candy review podcast. It's the greatest podcast since cereal, which is when they would taste cereal. <laughs> but that that's what we do in our show. We don't do cereal, but it's a candy review podcast. So it's us. You've got me and Greg and then a friend of ours, Beto Sistos. If you love our... That, banter that you just can't put in a bottle. So it's got all that. But then in the episode, we pick a different candy each episode. We give a history of it and then we taste and review it live for you. Mm -hmm. We play some games. We got all sorts of things we do at the, but don't play games with you listening to this. If you want to listen to this, we've got the episodes we have out already. We got Snickers, Sweet Tarts, and The Look Bar. Bar. If you want to listen to that, that's Candy is Dandy. Anywhere podcasts are found, you can follow us on any social media at Candy is Dandy pod. We really want you to check it out and we think you would really like it. So uh, do so. Do so. My favorite candy is called do so. I can't wait to taste (laughs) do so ropes. Cut open a do so. (laughs) I'm going to go drop a do so. (laughs) Okay. So now for the do so of LA history podcasts, get ready for LA Meekly. Hey there. Welcome to 104. Possibly. The LA Meekly podcast. (laughs) It's either 104 or 105. As you were going over numbers in the low 100s before this started, I was remembering, since I just saw the Elvis movie, Taking Care of Business, I was thinking of Burning Love and how I missed my opportunity to sing It Must Be 103. (laughs) When we did our 103rd episode. So uh, if we could just have some dynamic ad insertion uh, to go back two or three episodes to add me going dynamic ad but it's ADD a dynamic ad so I can add a a bit in dynamic ADHD (laughs) so welcome to LA Meekly the podcast that will have you saying don't you have another podcast oh did you hear the ad (laughs) I'm gonna go drop a do so what does that mean why did I say that Uh, yeah so we're we're here (laughs) why do do I keep doing that this is your way of coming out there are more graceful ways to do it (laughs) there's no more graceful way to come out. Mom and dad. I'm here. I'm here. (laughs) Sit down. I have something to tell you. Mother, father, I'm here. I'm queer. (laughs) Now, let me finish. Get used to it. We were used to it. We have no problem with that. Mother, father. Mother, father, please. Don't don't interrupt. Uh, Must be a (laughs) hundred and four. Why? That's not Elvis. It's not Elvis. That sounds a little more like the I I gotta get I'm doing late, like last performance Elvis. You're doing like, he's on the toilet. He's not feeling well. Oh, I gotta go drop a do so. So it's August. Happy August, everybody. Happy August. I hope you made it through July, the month of uh, the resurgence of COVID, (laughs) the emergence of monkeypox, and uh, nonstop hotness. Nonstop. And little water. Very little water. Uh, The world's literally on fire. And it must be 130. (laughs) Actually, it's 30 Celsius, and it's quite hot. They had to convert it when that song played in the United Kingdom for the heat wave. (laughs) Lord Almighty, it must be 40 Celsius. (laughs) And all the Brits were like, this is pretty good. I think I'm going to start the Beatles now. This is pretty good. 
excited. <laughs> Before we get into anything, we got one new Patreon person. Oh, we haven't cool. had one of those in a while. We haven't. Hey, if you want to support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Meekly for as little as $5 a month, we'll send you a handwritten postcard every month. This month, brand new, we got James Neff. I'm aware of James Neff. I've talked to him on the internet, I think. Yeah, that's the James Neff of the internet. That's him. <laughs> he lives on the internet. He's Alexa's husband. <laughs> they tied the knot? Thank you, James Neff. Uh, we'll be sending you a postcard they very tie, soon. They tied the knot.com, which is also on the internet because it's a dot com. Uh, yeah, thank you, James Neff, for supporting us. And yeah, anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone else? Anyone? In this room full of dolls? If you've looked on our Instagram, you will see that we are sitting nearby a stuffed Fred Flintstone and they talking. He talks. The the Rodney Dangerfield, if he had batteries, he would, boy, would he rip you a new one, Greg. Oh, he would come for you, possibly your wife. And then he would would come up real close and be like, I'm just kidding. You're a good crowd. You're You're a good kid. We're all having fun. I don't get no AAA batteries. (laughs) That's why he's not roasting us right now. There's always a horror movie where someone walks into a room full of dolls <laughs> and one of them's like, a side eyes somebody. Like, I want that uh, to come <laughs> in this room and it's like Fred Flintstone like, yabba dabba don't. It kills me. Yabba dabba kill. <laughs> yabba dabba die. That's what it is. That's the, like they're doing the Winnie the Pooh scary right, remake. Scary, yeah. Once Fred Flintstone is in the public domain, yeah. I guarantee a week later there will be a yabba dabba die movie <laughs> out. Before we get into August, what we're talking about in yes. August, what did you do in this past July. What did you yabba dabba do this past July? This, I did this something new I haven't segment, done. Yabba dabba did. <laughs> what did I yabba dabba did this month? <laughs> I started going to Cantor's Deli uh, yeah. on my way to my new job and I stop in for coffee in the morning. It's my new weekly ritual once I get paid. I can do it twice a month. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone, I think, like maybe twice together, yeah. like 20 years ago or something. Yeah, back when we were in our 40s. <laughs> but and when was, we were in the in the Sex Pistols. Yeah, we were both Yeah, we were both vying for, we were uh, Sid Vicious's interns. <laughs> Would help him forget how to play. Would make sure to not plug his stuff in. I, I was Daniel Malicious. <laughs> what was your Sid Vicious intern name again? Teddy Curious was mine. <laughs> yeah, so I went to Canada. We haven't been, I mean, when we went to Cantor's, we used to go like late at night, I think, on the way to other stuff. Yeah. Or after things, we'd like go to movies and then go to Cantor's. And I, I can't remember if our experiences were good or bad or not. I remember the atmosphere a lot. I specifically remember one time going to Cantor's with you and I ordered, as I normally do, a banana split. Oh, right. And I like immediately had to go to the bathroom. And right. It was like the worst. It, it was like Sid Vicious is back because it was. It was like I don't think it's been cleaned since like the seventies. Yeah, it's really weird being in there in the morning with natural light and not a lot of people because you're kind of like, oh, this place is old. Yeah, it's not like done up to look old. It's genuinely it's a, an old place. Oh, this place is dirty. Yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't call it dirty, but it is like, oh, this is aged. But yeah. I, I really love it. I've been having Nespresso. We have an espresso machine, so I've been okay, having uh, it works in the uh, George Clooney's yeah. house. <laughs> so I've been used to like my body is set to the rhythm of the, those espresso levels and then i went to canters and had a regular coffee and it was like like trucker pills like a handful of trucker pills i was just like revved up wait a minute so the regular but but isn't like canters a, regular isn't a nespresso stronger than a, a canter I would, a signature canters cup of I coffee i would think so and i've been having the espressos and they give you know they they give me the boost i don't get jittery from them but this this regular coffee from canters Weird. i got like jittery like so you took one sip and yelled yeah Dabba dabba do and and went to work and opposite Fred Flintstone opposite Fred Flintstones I went to work I blew the horn which is actually just a big <laughs> elephant a prehistoric <laughs> elephant you ruined all of the movies that we were filming at the time <laughs> so when you see the next Borat movie yeah 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 and you hear a loud <laughs> that's when Greg had his cough that's when well, Greg fu- 
ah, you know that that's me trying to get uh, into the front door of my job. My job. My uh, work dog locked yeah. me up. A lot of the postcards uh, that I made to send are canters. So or the stained I, glass, right? Or the front? It's just the front. Okay. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, whenever I'm writing one of those postcards, one of my signature Cantor's postcards, I'm like, I really want to go to Cantor's. Like it's, yeah. it's quite expensive. Yeah, that's why and I only get coffee. It's not, it's not the best deli out there, but it's it, there's something there's something about there's something about there really is something about Cantor's. It really is one of those spots where like, oh, this is like legitimately an old place. Kind of like I, I don't want to say farmers market, but like farmers market does when you're walking around feel like old pictures of it. And yeah. Cantor's is the same way. It feels like old pictures of Cantor's. Yeah. Farmers market is like a, a an old farm hand <laughs> who would never get along with Cantor, who's no. like an old Jewish man. An old Jewish <laughs> an lady. Old, an old Jewish lady who just moved here from <laughs> Marine Park, Brooklyn. That's that's very specific. That's very specific. I feel like you immediately thought of somebody in your life when you said that. <laughs> and I miss her. <laughs> well, you want to hear what I did? Mm. And also, how dare you again of like, Daniel, uh, you're going to bring up food again. This is like two in a row that you said I went to one? a restaurant. I, I don't know. You oh went to like a Del God. Taco drive through or something. And you're like, this is the best place in It LA. was historic. What? I'm allowed to do food every once in a while. And I'm also allowed to do food because I'm so backed up from your long catalog. Speaking of, of Elvis. Elvis. <laughs> Speaking of Daniel at Cantor. <laughs> the quite the opposite, my boy. I bet on every postcard you tell the diarrhea story. I bet. Go ahead. I just dip this thing in diarrhea and nail it out, and people would love it. People would eat it up. My thing is uh, also food. Jesus Christ! I knew, you, but how dare? You? But I. This is a pattern of behavior with you. Uh, I show you the carrot, and then I eat the carrot. <laughs> and then here comes the stick. It's a pixie stick. It's a pixie stick, and I eat that too. Yeah. Uh, do you want the carrot or the pixie stick? <laughs> the rope holding the thing, also nerd rope. Uh, well, mine. I'm, I'm trying to uh, not just say like I went to this restaurant. Right, right, right. I'm pairing my food stuff with like, it's a thing that's also food. Oh, right. Because I finally went to something I've always wanted to go to, which was the Wat Thai Temple in Sun Valley. Okay. If you're on the 170 in like in Sun Valley or like mm -hmm. our Pacoima Arlita and you look, if you're driving south and you look to the right, you're going to see like a giant golden temple. That's Wat Thai Temple. And okay. every weekend they have in their parking lot area, like 30 different Thai food stalls. Whoa, really? And you can go in the temple, you can see like the sure there's no putting down the beautiful temple that's something like the biggest buddhist temple in america or uh, something. i saw i saw a little bit of it in a reflection of food i was eating <laughs> when i took a break to breathe when the ripples in my tom yum soup settled down i got a pretty good view of that temple first off it's a weird thing because like i think they don't technically have a food license to sell food oh, so you have to go to a booth and buy like tokens so oh, you're like right. i want here's ten dollars they'll give you ten tokens and then you go to the booths and it's like this is seven tokens what's the word for that i think it's uh laundering is that laundering or my uh, it's cash only also <laughs> non-sequential bills uh, under the table what does that mean <laughs> there were so many different thai things and it was really good really good yeah. like some of the best thai food i've had and also really cheap we both uh got cow soy which is like a soup sort of thing uh -huh. and great for reflections and as <laughs> but it was seven coins oh wow okay. and it was like a pretty good meal for seven coins there's a lot of good stuff there and i highly recommend it it's a lot of fun wat thai temple in sun valley okay if you're barreling down the 170, take the time to turn to your right. If you are unfortunately find yourself in Sun Valley, don't fear. You won't go hungry. <laughs> as long as you have enough tokens to get you food. <laughs> tokens are non-refundable. <laughs> uh, yeah, so that's another thing you have to be like, how much token do I need? Yeah. Because I, I don't want to be stuck with like, even though the tokens are pretty cool because it has like the emblem of the temple oh, on it. Cool. But like, I'm not paying $1 for a souvenir. It's not the thing at like a the county fair where like, this ride is two tickets. And you're like, oh, cool. And each ticket is like $14. No, yeah. 
Yeah, it was a, uh, maybe it's just the way the economy these days and the way the <laughs> dollar is, yeah. the strength of the dollar, but the dollar to Wat Thai Temple tokens right now, one to one. Well, that's good. That's <laughs> what I like. I don't like to think very much. Yeah, so that was last month. We'll do a listener question at the end. Okay. It's uh, August. We're here. <laughs> <laughs> what are we talking about this August? Uh, and what are we talking about, Willis? Somebody did a, what you're talking about, Willis. And I thought, when are these people going to die that remember this <laughs> reference? So I don't have to hear it anymore. And it's along the same lines as like Run Forest Run, uh-huh. which is so old now. Or do I make you horny, baby? As the immortal bard once said. Right, 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 right. Can, do you make... understand the words coming out of my mouth? Oh, God. No, oh, that, that bothers me. The generation needs to pass on. So that can be out of the lexicon. But then you and I also laugh at where's the beef. So like we need to, we're, we're also part of the problem. Uproariously. <laughs> it is. That has been a thing we've put into our intros several times. <laughs> and we're still looking for it. They're just like Americanisms at a yeah. certain point. We're like, yeah, yeah. Detached some, from anything. Like that in 200 years, like that. That's what she said will be like truer words have never been spoken. Like someone's going to write their thesis on that's what she said. In this era, men used to speak for women. That's why they would say that's what she said. Women used to have freedom in this country and they used to be able to say things. And that was slowly taken away. So men would have to say that's what she said, referring to what women said, if allowed to say anything at all. What women want is their freedom back. But that's not what we're talking about. No, we're not. Sorry, I wanted to do this month something different. Uh, not that different because we did something similar to it not too long ago. A name kept popping up and I was getting genuinely curious what this dude's deal was. And I decided that I want to do this month's episode on him. I'm going to be covering Jack Dragna, gangster, quote unquote, extraordinaire. You're going to be covering Mickey Cohen. Mickey Cohen, gangster, quote unquote, extraordinaire. <laughs> Dra- Jack Dragna keeps coming up and I keep thinking like, oh, the guy from Dragnet. And I'm like, no, th- there's something part in my brain too where I would tell type Jack Dragnet a lot and I would have to go back and I would type Dragon. I'm like, that's not it either. So we'll be talking about gangsters of that era. Or ours kind of overlap for a while and yours. Because originally we wanted to do gangsters. Yeah. We wanted to be gangsters originally. <laughs> What's the first line of the Goodfellas? Uh, as soon as, <laughs> as far back as I can remember, I always wanted to be a gangster. We're going to be narrating <laughs> our own death or whatever happens in Goodfellas. We've been, I mean, this is one of those things, one of those like almost pillar episodes yeah. of LA history of the big gangsters because we did bugs, kind of did yeah. Bugsy, yeah, yeah. We did the death of Bugsy Siegel, which mm-hmm. I feel like there's more to the story. <laughs> there might be more to the story than his last day. <laughs> and then, yeah, we did the gambling, the Gardena mm-hmm. and all the gambling and we've stuff. we covered Tony the combination Cornero. before as well. Yeah, these, these people have, at first I was thinking like, yeah, we'll do gangsters. We'll do Mickey Cohen, yeah. Jack Dragna, uh, Bugsy Siegel. And then I realized like, well, Mickey Cohen is like an hour long. <laughs> Particularly these two sort of locked, locked in an eternal battle. Yeah, these Like two... Fred Flintstone and Rodney Dangerfield. Like Fred Flintstone and the future. Mickey was coming in as Jack was going out, but they did like run into each other and it was not pleasant. There was a, almost, not quite a changing of the guards, but like they came to a head, these yeah. two. As we'll learn from your segment, everybody came to a head with Mickey Cohen. <laughs> Mickey Cohen was not a pleasant person. None of these people are, but like more than most, Mickey Cohen, even his friends were like, dude, no. I have to preface my stuff about Mickey Cohen because- Because he's Jewish and it's excusable? Is that what you're going to say? He's part of the tribe, Greg. <laughs> and I, I can't turn my back on that. He's not that bad. 
man. He's Jewish. Um, could he be? Any any person we do research on, like even if it's Charles Manson or something, yeah. there's it's like when you're starring in a movie with somebody, you fall in love a little bit with your co-star. So like I sort of was like, wow, Mickey Cohen's so cool. And then I had to stop myself like, well, he was a drug trafficker, a human trafficker. Mm-hmm. He murdered a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, not a good guy, but there's still like going to be a sort of an affection in my voice. Right, right, but right, just right. because it's- Can you believe it? Just because it's so, he's so interesting. He is very interesting. And he is like, I've always thought like the Charles Manson saga and everything that happened is such an LA thing to have happened. The Mickey Cohen is such an LA type gangster. Right. Like yeah. only surfing, <laughs> surfing, wearing vans. He's vying for extra work on TV and background and stuff. And for a little bit, he was delivering Uber Eats. <laughs> Mickey and Bugsy were sort of like, I, oh, I'm a celebrity well, gangster. <laughs> like, okay, settle down. We'll get into we'll it. We'll get into Let, it. Let's, let's, let's t- tell me. It. About Jack Dragnet. Okay, I I literally knew like three things about Jack Dragnet. I'm very interested to learn about this guy. Jack Dragnet was born Ignacio Dragnet in April of 1891 in the aptly named Corleone, Sicily, in the Italian city of Palermo. Really? Yeah. Wow. So, do you think Michael Corleone is uh, related to? No, he's fr- Michael Corleone is from Godfather Italy. <laughs> he was born to Francesco Palla and Anna Dragna. I don't know why he took his mom's last name, but maybe the, I I never found out if his dad was in the picture or not. Probably not. Just to give you some historical. Uh, between 1876 and 1914, about 14 million people, which is about a third of Italy's population, left the old country for the United States for a myriad of reasons. 14 million? That's what I, I read that. And I'm like, that can't be, but I don't know. That's I don't a lot know. of paisans. A lot of the reasons were like earthquake weather related, but also like the economy was so bad at the time. They're like, well, no, uh, this won't be a thing anymore. And a lot of them- They were uh, afraid of Vesuvius. So the Dragnas were part of this whole group. Uh, Anna, his mother, immigrated to America via the SS Alsatia in 1898 bringing with her Ignacio, his older sister Giuseppa, and their older brother Gaetano. Once here, they stayed in Brooklyn with a family headed by Antonio Rosado. Risotto. Risotto? Risotto. Is it Risotto? I think you it's, can, a, it's not offensive to say Risotto if his last name is Risotto. It's Risotto, Antonio Risotto, which was her cousin's family, uh, who's also from Corleone and was a family family you can't uh, see me doing air quotes uh, but family family uh, i'm not quite sure but like 10 years later the dragnas returned to sicily where ignacio joined first he joined the italian army and then second he joined the sicilian mafia not like <laughs> which is an, a department it's, it's, a, it's an arm of the italian army <laughs> they've yeah got the, once you they, raise the ranks you're in them you're legitimately in the they've mafia. got the navy the army <laughs> the, the marines and the mafia <laughs> and the air mafia land sea Air and Delhi. <laughs> after all this, they returned to America in like the 1910s. And after serving the mafia in Sicily, when he came back to New York, Ignacio fell in with Gaetano Rihanna, who was a lieutenant who was close to a powerful gang boss, Giuseppe Joe the Boss Masseria. Excuse me for not knowing how to pronounce <laughs> Italian names off the cuff. Uh, eventually, Masseria led his own crime family in Manhattan and the Bronx. So Dragna was now a player in the New York Italian mafia. And the Giuseppe is either Masseria or Morallo. I read both when I was doing my research. So I'm just going to, I, I kind of just switch it in my right. Apparently, <laughs> Ignacio was now going by the name Charles Dragna. In New York in 1914, a murder would lead to the exposure of the Italian crime syndicate. Chicken magnet and poultry dealer <laughs> Barnett Bath was murdered by an outfit that represented the quote unquote poultry trust in New York. Is this part of the Breaking Bad universe? Yeah, yeah. Did you weren't aware that that was all true? Los Paisanos Hermanos, <laughs> or no, no, I guess the Poyo. No, is, is this a thing that happens in Breaking Bad? <laughs> There's a chicken guy. Oh, he, he runs it, he basically runs like Church's Chicken, but he's like the biggest gang lord and okay well this is pretty simple well this guy is just (laughs) this is just just is just like that (laughs) this is just like a regular poultry dealer uh Uh, i say wink wink we're we're winking now we're winking we're gonna be winking for most of this episode we'll try to make it audible when we wink (laughs) 
So Barnett Baff was just like a poultry dealer and the gangsters that this poultry trust in New York would extort $10 per truckload of poultry from merchants. Barnett Baff resisted this extortion and because of this, he was gunned down in public. Others say that he was gunned down because in 1911, he actually tried to expose the poultry trust, but either way, he wasn't going to be talking anymore. Barnett oh, Baff's boy. murder would lead to an investigation of how organized crime worked in New York. Many claim that the hit was carried out by Dragna and Ben Rosado and wouldn't you know it, but in 1914, Rosado and Dragna fled to sunny Los Angeles for whatever reason, just casually. A poultry trust risotto sounds like a great combination to me. Sounds like a great meal. So they come to Los Angeles and then Ignacio's brother Gaetano soon followed and was now going by the very American name Tom. Tom. Gaetano is now Tom. Tom. Ignacio is now Charles. Tom. So let's talk a little bit about the Italian organized crime in LA around this time. Here's something I didn't know and didn't have enough time to detail, but the dreaded and spooky Black Hand criminal organization had an, I don't know if it had an LA chapter or if a group calling and acting as if they were the Black Hand was here like a copycat sort of thing i think that actually happened a lot they had like a like a kiosk yeah they had, <laughs> they had a satellite a, in the a, airport they had a, a remote warehouse yeah the black hand were notorious at kidnapping extortion arson and murder as a means of getting money black hand kind of does out during the prohibition when bootleggers become big time crime kings but it, between 1890 to 1920 many would-be mafia members would start off by committing these black hander crimes it seems like there was an original black hand but once they became notorious it became more of like an idea like a like a sort of batman thing <laughs> where you if you want to extort money from a fruit vendor let's say you write a threatening letter and you cite it the black hand and then everyone flips out and because there's no registry or no central operating group for the black hand they can get away with calling themselves black hand and right. suddenly the black hand is in los angeles so whether they were actually in la or not it's not we're not really known fruit vendors are a superstitious and fearful bunch. <laughs> obviously the mafia is objectively bad right but there's so many times where like they're so romanticized yeah, it's yeah, so yeah. interesting and then when you really get into the details of it it's like oh they were extorting and manipulating like the poorest people out of the little money they had and that was like their bread sure they extorted the highest people too right, but right, like right. they were squeezing people who had nothing for mm -hmm. everything they and had and couldn't literally not defend themselves against them yeah. and uh yeah great guys great guys <laughs> a little kid who's poor growing up sees the mafia knock over a fruit vendor and take all his money and they're like wow. cool <laughs> and at no point sympathize with the fruit vendor they're like oh he's a loser because he got knocked over by a really big guy with power. Ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a fruit vendor. <laughs> I'd watch that movie. Fruit fellas. <laughs> Along with these black hand crimes, okay, so Jack Dragna was one of these criminals that would be recorded practicing black hand crimes when he came to LA. Uh, and Jack Dragna is the son. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Or Charles Dragna. All the same guy. Ignacio is his real name. He starts going by Charles. And then when he gets to LA a little bit later, it's going to be a big reveal. Jack Dragna. Oh. All the same guy. So the, like, the Holy like a, Trinity. Like the Holy Trinity. His brother changed his name to Tom, a more American name. He changed his name to Jack, which is more American. Okay. Cause, yeah, I thought it was, uh, that's very confusing. Because I know it's like the Dragnas were like a family. Yeah. But I thought, I didn't know it was just two brothers. They would refer to the Dragna family, but it didn't seem like anyone above him in his family, his dad wasn't in the picture at all. He was like the oldest, well, his brother Tom was, but Jack was, I think, it's a little like the, more of the a... black hand. If you tell enough people you have a family, yeah, they'll, they'll all fear that exactly. you have a family. And then like his cousin's family was a mafia family, the Risottos. So like, I'm sure when you say the Dragnas, you're also talking right. about the Risottos yeah, yeah, yeah. It's everything. a family in the, the mob sense. Yes, so. thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so along with these black hand crimes, there were also more traditional Italian run crime families. According to MafiaHistory.us, the early Sicilian American underworld that dominated Southern California in the late 19th century was an extension and expansion of a mafia out of New Orleans, uh, which had some sort of relation to the mafia of Southern Colorado, which I did not look into at all. I didn't even think, because the New Orleans mafia shows up very briefly. They're jazz band. They're a great jazz band. <laughs> the way that they could play when the saints come marching in. <laughs> when the feds come marching in. <laughs> 
yeah, they briefly show up in mine, and I was like, there was a mafia in Louisiana? Yeah. Like, that that innocent town of the, Louisiana? The other LA? The other crime city? <laughs> the LA that doesn't have dots in between the two letters? <laughs> it seems like after, like, Italians would get to New York, and then they would try to branch out, and then they ended up in Louisiana, New Orleans, because I Weird. guess of all the gambling that was happening down there. That makes sense. On, and it's also, I think, was it like a, it was like a port, like a big port city, right? I have no idea how this works. <laughs> the landlocked city of Louisiana. <laughs> if you're not scared of alligators, it's a, it's you can get in <laughs> the there. The la- landigators. <laughs> also involved with Black Hand was Dragna's mentor, another man from Corleone named Salvatore Striva, or as he went by later, Sam Striva, who arrived in Los Angeles in 1901 after basically being exiled from Italy. On the surface, Striva was a barber with his own shop uh, in San Pedro and later ran a baking company on 11th Street, also in San Pedro. But on the download, was extorting money all through San Pedro and Wilmington, as well as running a blind pig which just means an illegal winery, which is a... Wait a minute. Haven't we t- didn't we talk about that yeah, recently? A I, blind pig? Yeah, I, the gambling episode was a... That um, phrase, I, I haven't... That's a phrase I haven't I heard, heard since. since. And I just walked away. <laughs> that's a phrase I haven't heard since the Disney Plus series. Blind pig. He was running an illegal winery, which is... F- funny for a speakeasy to be like a wine bar is very funny to me. And you <laughs> the come feds in and busted <laughs> and it's like Frasier. <laughs> <laughs> Heavens! Which is another intro we did. <laughs> so this was 1915 and Strivo is the ringleader of this criminal group fighting for dominance of San Pedro ports along with major crime families in LA. Like he wasn't major, but the major ones were the Matrangas, the Susias, and the Ardizonis. These I are think, all Italians? These are all Italian okay. run families. Ardizoni, I think I'm saying that right. I don't know if I'm saying any of these right. So these, okay, so Strivo's kind of low on the totem pole, but he's token dragnet as like a mentee. But these are the three families dominating the LA area. It's so weird to think about. I guess that's why it's underworld history. What would you yeah, call it? Like, I, guess, I had no idea there was mafia in San Pedro. But it makes sense because it's a port city. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to do get into these three families a little bit more without like stretching my research too much. But it was literally like, like a family tree that wasn't extending out. <laughs> so these three families are basically at war with each other. Around the turn of the century, maybe 1905, the most prominent Italian criminal organization in LA was being run by the Mat- Ranga family, who may or may not have been related to Charles Matranga in New Orleans, who ran the mafia down there. That prominence was being challenged by Joe Ardizoni. First, he went to war with George Maisano and managed to whack him. He shot him in the back outside of the, is it the mayor and Zo, the brewery? Meyer and Zobel. Yeah. Meyer yeah. and Zobel. He yeah. shot him outside the Meyers and Zobel's huh. cursed ass brewery on the Lisa Yeah, isn't Street. that the one where they cut down the tree? They cut down the tree and then the tree fell on them. Yeah. <laughs> That's the one. In Meyer and Zobel and brewery, tree cuts down you. <laughs> so part of the curse, maybe, but then somebody was killed right <laughs> out of it. So in this particular beef, Joe's cousin, Joseph Susia of the Susia family was also killed. Killing George, Maisano made Joe Ardizoni. He like he was a former leader of the Black Hand, I guess. And killing this George guy made him one of the major bosses in the criminal world in LA. Maisano was an ally of the Matranga family, so that puts Ardizoni up against the Matranga family who went to war with him in 1910. So back to Dragna. Sam Striva, along with his brother Ben Striva and Dragna, they extorted money off of a wealthy rancher, Domenico Loricella, and threatened Is this to kill. an Italian also? I, I believe it's another Italian man, yeah. They threatened to kill his family. So Laura Cella went to the police and they arrested the three men. Jack served time in San Quentin and was released in 1920 at the dawn of the bootlegging era. Like he was released in the (laughs) year where everybody who was a bootlegger was suddenly a criminal mastermind. He's like, okay, sure, let's do it. Don't be tempted out there. So by this time, the black hand type extortion crimes were done and the Italian mafia crime groups dishing out booze and prostitution were in. But also the major crime operation in Los Angeles for Vice was the octopus of the 
the City Hall gang, which worked along with right. the police, the media, which was Alley Times and Chandler, even though they fought for control of police, and the criminals. This would have to be challenged, and it was going to be hard, but Jack Dragna would try, along with Johnny Rosali, who they think killed JFK. Some people speculate killed JFK, but now I know better. There's going to be a lot of JFK speculation in this episode. My favorite. <laughs> speculation number one, he's coming back, no. and he's running for Trump. He's going to be vice president. Not even RFK anymore. Yeah. JFK. Not even JFK Jr. anymore. JF- John yeah. Fitzgerald Kennedy. Yeah, that's who it was. He's going to come, and he's going to open his hand, and a bullet's going to come out. And he's like, who's magic now? And then Trump, with his little hands, collapse. So along with Johnny Roselli, they would muscle out low-level gangsters like Guy McAfee and Farmer Page. Those were two of the people I talked about in the gambling episode. That's right, episode. yeah. Guy McAfee was a former cop running gambling. I said it was the gambling episode. Why are you questioning it? And he was, you know, basically breaking up their operation. They would eventually go to Vegas and just try to scramble any control that they can get. Around this time, Jack Dragna sets up the Italian Welfare League, also known as the Italian Protection League, which he partnered with with Joe Ardizzoni, who's the guy who's going to war with the Monrangas. For this, Jack was a president and Joe was a treasurer. The purpose of this league on the surface was to assist Italian grape growers and vineyards of California who were suffering through restrictive prohibition laws. Like Italians had vineyards, couldn't make money anymore, so these two guys put an organization together to try to help them. And then extort them. And extort them. <laughs> the club was noted as being like a social and political club that had strong influence on the Italian community. Many claim that this was just a front for a muscle operation, but they used the Italian Welfare League for something more sinister, but we'll get to that a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Joe Artizoni was the leader, but the Warring Families was still a thing, and Iron Joe did a lot to things to piss people off. New Orleans gangster Vito DiGiorgio was backed by the Eastern Mafia leaders and sent to LA in hopes of unifying the crime families of LA. But DiGiorgio was killed in a pool room in Chicago, and many people think that Joe was behind this. So in 1931, the tides were changing. Joe Artizoni was starting to get targeted, and many suspect after the killing of Dominic Giacello? DeSalio. I have no idea. A hard C, Greg, or a soft C. So he killed this guy, Dominic DeSalio, who was the king of the Little Italy underworld in LA's North End. He killed him. In March, Artizoni and his friend Jimmy Bazzali were headed home from Downey when a large sedan pulled up on them and fired. Bazzali was killed, and the attack left. Arizoni wounded with seven gunshots, but he managed to stagger to safety. In October, Joe left his house on Mount Gleason Avenue and started towards his cousin's house. From what is rumored, he was pulled over by another car with armed goons and they took Joe for a ride. That was the last time anyone <laughs> saw him, dead or alive. He disappeared, and after seven years, his wife declared him legally dead. A day later, Joe's brother Frank went missing, and while Joe Arizoni may have had many enemies and many reasons to get killed, it's said the person behind Joe's disappearance was Jack Dragna, Uh-oh. because Jack was next in line for power and with Joe gone mm. Dragna stepped in as a new boss of the Los Angeles criminal underworld in LA Jack Dragna was now the west coast godfather under his reign basically Lucky Luciano and Myers Lansky on the east coast were okaying everything right. here but he was now their man for yeah. for LA the west coast godfather also instead of oranges uh, he needs an orange Julius that's the big in the west coast version of the godfather movie that's the big metaphor is an orange Julius <laughs> and he puts an orange Julius cup in his mouth to and entertain his grandchildren and then dies because it doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit and it, it goes right through his teeth. Somebody says no to the West Coast Godfather. They wake up. They have half a skateboard in their bed. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> and there's like, like melted sex wax all over the, the, the bedding. Like I was saying, he's now the West Coast Godfather and all the families under Lucky Luciano's commission in Los Angeles would now be unified. All these warring right. families now we're not going to be at war anymore because they put a guy in. It gets kind of confusing to me because there was so much Jewish gangsterism in Los Angeles mm-hmm. and it was headquartered on the East Coast, which was a Italian Jewish union. <laughs> I, I get mixed up of like, who's Jewish? Like, which, yeah, which, who am I rooting for here? <laughs> which one of you am I supposed to relate to? Everyone has Tommy guns <laughs> and fedoras. Who am I supposed to relate to here? Which one of you look like uh, people in old pictures of my family? <laughs> if I was going to a bar mitzvah, who would party would I be at? Am I going to a bar mitzvah or a communion? <laughs> I'm dressed for one, but not the other. <laughs> so now it's 1931. Jack Dragnet is now the boss of the criminal underworld in Los Angeles. And with Mayor George Cryer out of office, the City Hall gang was all but busted up. But now that prohibition was also over, bootlegging was old business. So they turned to gambling and prostitution to keep vice flowing. Dragnet, along with some other associates, purchased a football field-sized fishing barge. His was the Malfalcone, which- Football field-sized? That's what they said. That's what I read. The, the Malfalcone was football field-sized. They size. get it from the, from the Navy? <laughs> yeah, they got it from the Navy. And you could only- only buy boats if it's the length of a, a sports stadium. Yeah. Uh, I, I ordered a football field size boat. This is a lacrosse field <laughs> size boat. Oh, I ordered the half court. The, his was the Monfalcone, which we talked about in the gambling right, right, ship right. episode, which we learned luxury gambling ship off the coast of LA, went to war with other gangster ships like the Joanna Smith and the SS Rex, and the Monfalcone was burned and sank. Also, but a big important thing about- But a, but a big, but a boom. But a, a big part of these gambling ships, I don't know if I talked about enough, was the horse betting, which was done through what was called called race wiring, which by the way, race is a verb. Um, right. That was what Charles Manson was trying to start. <laughs> it was a racket that they made money from. It was just basically like bookmaking done continentally yeah. through Chicago thing. Right. And if you ran, if you use this service, this continental service through the Chicago outfit, Rosalie and Dragna made a cut from that, this race wiring thing. That was a big deal. Around this time, Jack fell in with a man named... Frank Shaw, who listeners might know as one of the most corrupt mayors of LA, the only <laughs> mayor to be uh, ousted. The bombing of Clifford Clinton, Harry Raymond, that was all under Shaw's reign. Shaw was groomed for office under Jack Dragna. Shaw was his political plant and allowed Jack to get away with his crimes. Wow. Their joint racket was securing construction contracts for a fee. A company bidding for a city or a county project would be insured the job over competitors if Jack liked them, which is very mm. similar to a guy yeah, I had recently. I'm, I'm glad the city's not like this anymore. <laughs> so rather than bleeding these contractors greedily, he received a one-time commission for brokering a deal. He got an office with his influence over the Italian community thanks to the Italian Welfare League. So he used he used his sway with the Italian community to put Frank Shaw in office. I'm always a little bit intrigued by these shadow men. Jack Dragnet was a shadow man for this Frank Shaw. And also, I'll get to it a little bit later, but Brenda Allen, too, the, the, the madam. Right. He was behind Brenda mm. Allen, too, which is very interesting to me. Yeah, there, there's a few things in Mickey Cohen's story where it's like, oh, this was the one doing that. Yeah. Like, th- this was the reason that uh, these bad things happen. It's very strange because we like to point, we're like, oh, well, she's the criminal mastermind. Well, actually, <laughs> she had to pay a cut to Jack Dragon. But his good times didn't last for very long because word from high above, being Meyer Lansky and Lucky Luciano, was that Dragna was not going to be their guy anymore. Mm-hmm. Their guy was going to be Bugsy Siegel, who was arriving on the West Coast later in the 30s. Dragna was certainly not happy about that, but questioning Luciano and Lansky was not an option, so he just had to go with it. And Siegel, Luciano, and Lansky basically all approved of the new gangster on the rise 
Mickey Cohen. Comparatively, Dragnet kept a very low profile. My hero. <laughs> Savior Alley, Mickey Cohen. <laughs> Boyle Heights own Mickey Cohen. <laughs> Shining star. Dragnet kept a very low profile, and it seems like trying to work in the shadows was very important to him. It seems like a, that was a big part of the job, was not being known by anybody. Yeah. You'd think that a gangster would keep a low profile. Right. Yeah, it's the black hand, not the hand that there's a flashlight exactly. shining on. <laughs> the lighted hand. Yeah. His predecessors, Siegel and Cohen, were the exact opposite in those respects. We'll probably get into that more, but in Los Angeles, both of them were the celebrated gangsters in town, mingling with movie stars, gracing the gossip columns, and 100% acting the part of a gangster. And in the new modern metropolis that was Los Angeles, he was really, Dragnet was really looked down upon. He had barely begun to unify the crime organization. He had struggled for years against the City Hall gang, and by 1938, his political plant, Frank Shaw, was ousted after Clifford Clinton and Civic had exposed corruption. He's like, uh, who is the actress who, the silent film actress, and then sound came, and she was like, well, what I, well, I love you, baby. <laughs> Who <laughs> could have been any of them? Was it Greta Garbo? It might have been Greta Garbo. I don't know. But whoever that is, like that's, that's what that's the equivalent of him of yeah. or of like Nixon. Exactly. Uh, what, Being wow, televised again. He sounds great on the radio. What does this man look like? And he's just like a melting crayon. <laughs> and then there's JFK next to him. Like that's that's what Bugsy Wiping Siegel. Wiping Marilyn's <laughs> lipstick off his face. Oh, I uh, don't know how this got here. <laughs> I fell into a that of lipstick. <laughs> and I uh, came out looking like the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, swear I will go after this Batman. <laughs> we go after him not because it's easy but because it's hard <laughs> anyways you know he he was kind of looked Dragnet was kind of looked at as maybe a failure in the eyes of the, the higher ups because he didn't dominate the Sunset Strip which was unincorporated territory outside of LAPD jurisdiction and could have been used for vice could have been had a proper casino that they profited from but Dragnet slept on this and now Siegel would have to come in late and establish that it was now the late 30s early 40s and a lot of vice was moving to Los Angeles but Cohen Siegel and Dragnet as we would learn would be here to stay while Dragnet and Siegel knew the importance of working well together. They swallowed a lot of their disdain for each other. Mickey Cohen did not have that kind of control and was constantly stirring the S Okay, let's not go casting aspersions against someone who's Jewish in front of me. <laughs> this is very anti-Semitic. <laughs> episode, Greg. You're veering into some sticky territory. Cohen was Why very... won't we all just stay in line, you say? <laughs> I could think of a lot of officers of a certain political party that thought the same thing. <laughs> Why won't we just be happy with what we have? You want us to stay on the Lower East Side? Greg. In the late 30s, early 40s? You don't find that problematic? <laughs> and might I just add, ask not what Batman can do for you, but what you can do against Batman. I, mean, I, I was looking for like, okay, when can I put that in there? No good time, but no, there it Probably is. not. It's going to come up and you're going to be like, I used it already. <laughs> so Mickey Cohen, constantly stirring S-word, pissing everyone off as you will go into. Do you go over um, Maury Arloff at all? No, I think his name came up, but like he, he, okay. he didn't fit in. He didn't fit my narrative. <laughs> <laughs> he made Mickey look bad. Uh, Mickey Cohen robbed an ally of Dragnet's name, Maury Arloff, pretty early on, and that alone set Dragnet spiritually against Cohen. Not fit, not like working against him in any way, but like, mm, yeah. if I ever come across. <laughs> Cohen either didn't care or was unaware of how well connected Dragnet was to top tier criminal bosses and was tied closely to Chicago upper crust. I, I imagine he didn't care at all. I imagine Mickey he thought, Cohen? No. Yeah, why would he care? Why, <laughs> why would he care at all? <laughs> why would the angriest man in Los Angeles? <laughs> the most hot headed person in Los Angeles care. The man 
one with the most complexes in the mafia. Why would he care what other <laughs> mafia people have to say about him? In 1942, Bugsy Siegel forced alley bookmakers to use his wire service instead of the Chicago wiretap that put money in Dragna's pocket. Siegel even sent Mickey to go to the alley office of this race wire service and bash stuff, scare them up, and ended up beating down the son-in-law of the guy who ran the Chicago wire service, which sent Mickey hiding from punishment and made Siegel have to clear things up over him. One of many times he did something yeah. like that. Yeah, one of 150 times. <laughs> this changeup started something called the Wire Wars with, that left a dozen people dead, which I was like trying to look up, but like Wire kind, Wars is a weird of, thing yeah, that comes up in kind Google. Of every, whenever you look for it, the Water Wars comes up. <laughs> Similarly, it was Dragna who pretty much set up the system that allowed Brenda Allen and the LAPD to run prostitution in the city and get protection, and it was Mickey Cohen who pretty swiftly and carelessly undid all of that when he used that revelation that Brenda Allen was shacking up with the LAPD sergeant as his ace in a hole during a trial. So this meticulously crafted thing that Drag Dragna put together, Cohen was just like, oh, uh, they like on trial. That's with- my boy. <laughs> That's my guy, Greg. So like Dragna is just like time after time again, like what the hell? Like, come on. So Cohen was pissing everybody off and Dragna, he may have looked at Bugsy Siegel as an equal, even if they didn't like each other. He saw Bugsy Siegel as least an equal, right. but certainly looked down on Mickey Cohen and they were not peers in his eyes. And that's a reciprocal. So when Bugsy Siegel was gunned down in his Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle home, a spot in the criminal underworld had become available. The press made a bigger deal of this like rivalry. But after Siegel was killed, there were many attempts at Cohen's life, as you're going to probably get into. Mm. And it was seemingly coming from every direction, or at least could have been. That was one direction in particular (laughs) that it was coming from. Nothing according to history spells out Dragna being behind these attacks. But Mickey was curious, although if he thought it was Dragna, he could have easily dealt with that. Or at least that's what Mickey said. In 1950, a crime committee was formed and put a spotlight on organized crime across the county. During these, the man behind the Continental Press Wire with the one that Jack Dragna was part of, he pretty much came out and said that Jack Dragna was the Al Capone of Los Angeles, putting Dragna's name in the ear of every law enforcer on the West Coast. Senator Estes Kafavers, I think his name is. Um, the committee thing. The that committee they thing. Yeah. His people pretty much call Dragna the mafia boss of the Pacific Coast and the kingpin of Southern California bookie syndicate. And while Mickey and Bugsy would have loved this kind of attention, <laughs> Jack Dragna hated it. He absolutely was like, well, Rude. I can't be a gangster anymore because everybody knows my name now. A reverse cheers. He was in <laughs> cheers, but not happy about it. You'll get into where Mickey Cohen his, goes. His and, cheers is Senate it, Judiciary it, it, Committees <laughs> where everybody, everybody knows, knows my name. name. Cliff is actually a, a high-ranking judge <laughs> drinking on the job, just like Cliff was. <laughs> so you'll go into where Mickey Cohen goes in 1951. I think like a couple of years after the committee, I think Jack Dragna is certainly starting to slow down after all of this. Jack Dragna's wife, Frances, dies of cancer, I think, in 1953. And Dragna himself was getting older and dealing with health issues as well as now having the feds looking into him more aggressively because of the committee. Dragna was having a hard time now for several reasons running a criminal organization. The feds were trying to have him deported and his plans to move to Las Vegas were stubbed when the authorities wouldn't even let him leave L.A. County. Finally, in 1956, Jack- Suddenly he follows the law? That's the one rule I can't break. That's the one law that <laughs> He I- has to be invited outside of L.A. <laughs> County first. Why has he been alive for so long? <laughs> uh, finally, in 1956, Jack Dragna died of a heart attack at the Saharan Hotel in Hollywood. Uh, Where's that? I, I, you know, I didn't even look into it. I saw a Saharan Hotel. I'm like, oh, he died in Vegas. That's weird. And like, in <laughs> no, Hollywood, yeah. I'm like, oh. Dragna has left a quiet legacy on the history of LA, as criminals maybe should have. His name appears throughout crime stories of Los Angeles, but he is not a personality like Cohen or Bugsy, and he's never been like represented that much in as like a big bad in Hollywood gangster movies. And sometimes later in the century, they would refer to Dragna and his organization as the Mickey Mouse Mafia for the 
inefficiency. But Dragnet was a career criminal himself coming from the old country and pretty much establishing and taking part in how Vice defined our city for like a yeah. like a long time. What a guy. He does such a he's the black hand of single LA gangsters because like not well known and did his job under the radar this entire like you say Mickey Cohen, you know who he is. You say Bugsy Siegel, you know who he is. You say Jack Dragnet, you have to think about it. And it's probably to his credit. If you're a gangster, that's what you want. Yeah, you, you want that. There's no such thing as Jack Dragnet. <laughs> Is Mickey Cohen, how many media representations of Mickey Cohen have there been? I could think of two up the top. He's represented in LA Confidential and he's played by Sean Penn in Gangster Squad. One of those movies is really good. <laughs> I know, I love Gangster, <laughs> Gangster Squad. Squad. I love. <laughs> but there hasn't been like the Mickey movie. <laughs> has there? You I know, mean, there's been the Goofy movie. <laughs> Goofy Luciano. Starring Chris Kattan. We all remember that movie. <laughs> No, I, I don't know if there's ever been a movie it, dedicated to weird. Mickey Cohen. Do you know a lot about Mickey Cohen? Because I'm about to tell you everything about Mickey Cohen. I, I, I've heard the story through Ali Noir, but I, I, I don't know beat for beat. How about beating for beating? <laughs> That's, That's pretty story. accurate. I've heard about him. It's pretty accurate. <laughs> so, all right, you ready for Mickey Cohen? Let's do it. Oh, Mickey, you're so fine. You're so fine. You blew several people's minds <laughs> right between the eyes. <laughs> oh, that could be enough. Do we need history? Why not just have limericks? <laughs> I could tell you about Mickey Cohen or, or I could that. Da, 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 da. <laughs> uh, so Mickey Cohen was born Meyer Harris Cohen on September 4th, 1913 in Brooklyn. Oh, not born in Boyle Heights oh, and wow. bridged the gap between childhood and hood lum. <laughs> His parents, Max and Fanny, were Jewish immigrants from Kiev, Ukraine, which mm -hmm. at the time was still Russia. And by the time this comes out, might again be because <laughs> time is a flat latka. His parents spoke little English, but he had five older siblings who were all given an education by his dad when he wasn't at work at his fish market. Okay. So his dad is a fishmonger. Fish. Just, just, a, just a smelly fishmonger. Fish right, vendor. From <laughs> Giving his kids an education on fishing <laughs> and the fishing industry and he'd read Moby Dick to them. Yeah, that was their first book. Yeah. Chowder sounds pretty good. It was the like golden band uh, yeah. books, but it was Moby Dick and it's 700 <laughs> it's pages. 700 pages. Very little illustration. <laughs> so sadly, that all, this whole setup with his dad came crashing down when his dad died of TB before oh, no. Mickey was even two years old. So now the homeschooling was over and so was kind of regular schooling too because now the whole family had to go to work so that they could have food on the table. So right. by age three, Mickey himself was a newsie whose job was to sit on the stacks of newspapers so that they wouldn't blow away. Pretty good job. Was, <laughs> it's a pretty good job. Hey, if it's union, I'll take <laughs> it. I mean, that's basically what I do now. But uh, the, the papers blow away. <laughs> and you know what? I can't profess that I'm good at my job, <laughs> but I do work there. I sit on all the e-newspapers. <laughs> I sit on all of the tweets that the LA Times shoots out every and, morning. Uh, they still get past me. <laughs> From there, he graduated to stealing said newspapers and trading them for candy and hot dogs. Not a dumb person. No. Literally. Anything to make a hot dog. I got to put hot dogs on the table. When I say table, I mean my stomach. <laughs> my family can't live off of the old gray lady, <laughs> weak old copies of the New York Times. Imagine coming into the family home and everyone's like huddled over like a thing of beans and they're so hungry and he comes in with mustard in his mouth like nah I'm good <laughs> I ate at work no you don't work so his older brothers opened up a drug store and once prohibition hit when Mickey was seven they taught the little seven year old how to make bathtub gin in the back of the pharmacy they were in wash himself in it kill two birds with one stone <laughs> which is something Mickey did later in life in other words it was a perfect New York City child <laughs> but then when he was nine it sounded like his mom also 
also got TB. Oof. So the family moved to the only place where you can be cured of TB, Boyle Heights, Los Angeles. Right. Uh, here, his mom opened up a grocery shop and later a restaurant where she could spread her TB freely <laughs> while the kids did whatever the hell they wanted. His mom loved all her kids and she tried to keep a religious and loving household, but they were just so poor and she just didn't have the time to be there for them and also provide for them at work. Right. So right, she wasn't really around and Mickey never really resented his mom, but he was mostly raised by his older sister, Pauline, who mm-hmm. did her best, but she was a child trying to raise a slightly younger child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And little Mickey did not feel good about any of this. His mom was so busy and her not being around made him feel rejected and unwanted. And he also felt inferior to his siblings because he didn't get the education they all got from his dad. Right. So he went to Cornwall Elementary School, which is now Sheridan Street Elementary. But it seems he was in a class for kids with special needs because he didn't know how to read and he hated it. Like he hated school. I would hate reading if I also didn't know how to read. Like that sounds (laughs) It's the worst thing (laughs) for you to try to do if you don't know how to read. I love pictures. I hate words. That makes sense. (laughs) The irony that he surrounded himself with the printed word uh, (laughs) on the street corner. Uh, Around this time when he was about nine years old, mind you, he decided to rob the box office of the Columbia Theater in Boyle Heights with a baseball bat. And for this, ended up doing two stints at a reform school on Fort Moore Hill where the teachers would beat him with a bicycle tire. Wow. With the whole tire or like the tube? spokes on <laughs> and the bike's still attached yeah, yeah, the bike is still attached to it they lift an entire bike well it was a unit it was one of those old timey like giant, oh, yeah, yeah, giant yeah, yeah, wheel yeah. little wheel you, you misbehave again i'm gonna hit you with the big wheel we can either do this the little wheel way or the big <laughs> wheel way uh then when he got back to his regular school he broke his leg so he was kind of separated from the rest of his class so he again felt unwanted and rejected by school uh, understandably so so at age 10 he just stopped going to school right he just that was it that was the end of his education instead he just spent his time wandering the streets of Boyle Heights as an illiterate 10-year-old. Wow. He got back into his old career of selling newspapers, this time for The Record, The Express, and The Examiner, both downtown at 7th and Broadway and in Boyle Heights on the corner of Soto and Brooklyn, which is now Cesar Chavez, right by the Breed Street Shul. There's a McDonald's there that I use the bathroom of. And Mickey Cohen would always use that bathroom. (laughs) Canonically, he would use the bathroom. He'd go in with a newspaper and say, can I have a six-piece chicken McNuggets? (laughs) And that's where that famous phrase came from. Take the McNuggets, (laughs) leave leave the canonical. He was a more of a savory guy. Take the bathrooms, leave the nuggets. <laughs> he also started running a dice game in the alley behind the newspaper building, but he was also in a Big Brother program, and his big brother was a guy named Abe Roth, who was a boxing referee and got Mickey into boxing. Right. So he started doing street boxing on the corners of Boyle Heights, sometimes making as much as $20 a fight. Wow. One time he even tried to bite his opponent's ear off in a fight in a move way ahead of his time. <laughs> Innovator. <laughs> That's what Mike Tyson said. That's what he whispered into Evander Holyfield, (laughs) soon to be not ear. This one's from Mickey. He whispered it into his ear, then he uh, got up and walked 10 feet and told Evander. (laughs) <laughs> but LA was a town of small ears and he wanted to go bite ears in the big time. <laughs> oh, I'm going to the big ear. The city, New York. The, the city of big ears, <laughs> Cleveland, Ohio. So he went to Cleveland, Ohio because his brother Harry was a fight promoter out there. Oh, wow. So in the late 20s at age 15, he decided to move there and give his boxing career a shot. Uh, his first professional bout was April 8th, 1930, which he won and then proceeded to lose his next five. Jeez. But that doesn't really matter because most of the fights were fixed and he was making money to supplement 
supplement his day job as a soda jerk in a drugstore, which oh knowing him, he must have loved. That must have been the worst soda fountain in all of Ohio. Uh, I'm going to make you a phosphate you can't refuse. <laughs> uh, it's good. Any, uh, any other uh, mafia done. quotes you have to, that are ice cream related? Can't think of any. He was only five foot five, but he earned himself the boxing nickname. That must have been a funny joke at the time. Gangster Mickey Cohen. Can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> this little shrimp. And then that shrimp went on to bite my ear off. <laughs> he fought in 19 fights total with his last one versus Baby Arizmendi from Mexico, who was kind of famous in 1933. He had gotten more into boxing because the depression was in full force and jobs he was qualified for, which were few to begin with, were even more scarce during the depression. So while he was boxing to make some extra cash, he turned more and more to gambling. And that was when he came into contact with a man that either ruined or saved his life, Lou Rothkopf. Uh, Lou was an associate of the legendary bootlegger Mo Dalitz, and this was Mickey's first contact with the mob, okay. which doesn't exist. But for, for the sake of this story, to, yeah. to make it more understandable to, you know, the marks out there that are listening, <laughs> the mob. Yeah, but keep in mind, we're, we're actually just talking about waste management. Yeah, it's a, it's a union. Yes. What do you want? Ask Jimmy Hoffa. He knows it's a union. <laughs> with the appeal of being paid to, with, well, I don't know why I wrote this, with the appeal of being paid to do hurt people, <laughs> Mickey- Did Mickey Cohen write? this? <laughs> no, those were pictures. If it was Mickey Cohen did it, it would be drawings he colored in with a Vander Holyfield's grandfather's ear. Uh, Mickey accepted an offer that he may or may not have been able to accept from Lou and got folded into what was called the Hill Mob. They were mostly Italian, so he got the catchy new nickname of the Jew Boy. Uh, his, <laughs> Something there's a ring to it. <laughs> this is another reason why I have so much affinity. I'm like, oh, you had that nickname too? <laughs> and I didn't even grow up in Cleveland. <laughs> so his new job title was either a bandit or an enforcer whenever the mob needed him, and they needed him. His first truly illegal deed was a deal he cut with the manager of a restaurant he went to where the two of them would split the money in the register, and then the manager would claim the restaurant had been robbed and that the money was gone. Not a great scheme, which is why he got caught for it and sentenced to two years of probation, which he obviously ignored. Uh, his talents really shine through in running a stick-up gang. He's a stick-up kid. He's like Omar from The Wire. He's, okay. He, go, he starts whistling a hunting, we will go. And he kind of looks like Elmer Fudd. Um, a lot more similarities to Elmer Fudd than you might think, this guy. Bugs Bunny represented the entire law enforcement. Yeah. Except this time, Elmer Fudd seems to win. In this stick-up gang, he had a team of seven, and with them, he'd rob cafes, gambling joints, brother, I wrote Brothers. I wrote brothers, but I meant brothels. I meant brothers. It's where men are sold. In total, he committed 380 Jesus. robberies in Cleveland and not even a long amount of time. But these glory days came to an end after two things happened. First, he was contracted to rough up some guy who owed the mob money, but the guy who was with Mickey to point out who he was to attack, the, the, the phrase they kept using was the fingering man, or like the finger man. I'm like, I don't really yeah, want to say yeah. that. So, I'd rather show you. Um, so the guy who was with him to point out the guy pointed out the wrong guy. Oh, no. So Mickey then went and beat this guy up, and then when he realized that he beat up the wrong guy, he went to the guy who pointed out the wrong guy and beat him up. Don't beat up the messenger. Who, it turned out, was a relative of a made man. Oh, so now no. Mickey's in hot water with the mob. Oh, then, wow, this tracks totally. <laughs> wow. Wow, I totally expected this <laughs> from him. So then he robbed a cafeteria and it went to hell and ended up in a huge shootout and he got arrested. So then when he got out on 
bail. His name was so hot both with the Cleveland mob <laughs> and the Cleveland police that he was shipped to New York City for a brief stay until things cooled down. What an idiot. Go ahead. <laughs> Greg, need I remind you, I have a slight affinity for this guy. But while he was in New York City, New York City, the Hill mob recommended Mickey to their branch in the big league Chicago. Chicago. So off Mickey went to the Windy City where he was folded into the outfit. How could you possibly recommend? After that, oh, I got the perfect guy. But you know what? He's good at his job. You're right. He's good at his job. (laughs) If you want a rabid bulldog on your side, I guess you're right. Just send him to Chicago. Like you can't fire these guys. (laughs) They're like Catholic priests. You can't fire them. You just have to ship them off to other cities. They just go to a city where they don't have the internet. (laughs) So Mickey got folded into the outfit, which was the network of a one Al Capone. He was still a low-level guy, but here he was given his own gambling network to run and his own armed burglary crew again, and he loved it. He was sometimes robbing three places a day. (laughs) It didn't matter what it was, as long as it had a register, he would rob the place. Oh, the the gift shop of the orphanage? (laughs) You buy souvenirs for uh, orphans? I want a little porcelain doll of George. I want a little doll of a little orphan boy. Do you want an orphan boy? Oh, God, no. no. Ew. Ew. Um, He said about this whole time, I lived from one high to another. The only thing I really wanted money for was a new hat. Sometimes I would buy two hats in one day for 50 bucks a piece. I was so crazy about buying hats. I mean, Lucy, Ricardo, both. (laughs) His husband? (laughs) Furious. Furious. How much is $7? And then his husband starts speaking in Yiddish really fast. (laughs) But Mickey... His husband's also named Mickey. <laughs> I love reading quotes from Mickey Cohen yeah, because they're, they're always ridiculous. Instead of saying, uh, he just said son of a bitch. If he couldn't think of a word, son of a bitch. A way to you make a son of a bitch laugh on <laughs> son of a bitch way. So things were going great in Chicago. He was yeah. robbing innocent people. He was making money. He had hats. <laughs> two Up to two hats. More than two, less than four. <laughs> there was apparently an incident where he murdered several other gangsters in a card game Jesus and briefly Christ. went to jail. Could not find anything about this, but... I just heard that that happened. He takes Uno very seriously. (laughs) When he draw four... Uno... Oh no. Oh no. I he, drew on four of them. That's what's kind of tricky about mafia research is like there's so many crazy stories that like, but why wasn't the historian around yeah. to document it? Like you just have to take some guy who went to prison 40 times words that like, yeah, Mickey Cohen did this. It's very much like researching ghost stories. It, it is because gangsters don't exist. But then he had yet another burglary go terribly wrong and his name became too hot to handle once again and he needed to get out of Chicago. Mm-hmm. But where to send him this time? <laughs> well, there is a newish city that the mob was trying to get a hold of out west and wouldn't you know it Mickey was from this city kind of mostly from there it was La Jolla no go ahead sorry (laughs) local La Jolla boy (laughs) so this was a perfect fit in 1937 Mickey Cohen moved back to LA for good they had a guy running things out there and Mickey's new job was to help this man who they called Bugsy Siegel. As we know, kind of, Bugsy Siegel was the East Coast Jewish Mafia's man in LA, close associate of Meyer Lansky and on Lucky Luciano. Right. He was at this point on his rise to controlling most of the illegal activity in LA, and we all know how he died. <laughs> but for now, Mickey Cohen was assigned as... Bugsy's guy. Basically, his right-hand man and enforcer, and together they took over Los Angeles. Right. If Bugsy wanted dirty work done, Mickey was the guy who would either arrange it or do it himself. 
right. all while living in an apartment at 8th and Figueroa across the street from the Ambassador Hotel. Wow, really? Yeah, and not the last time RFK is going to come up in this story. <laughs> After what? He lived I- in that book depository on 8th and Fig? <laughs> Always peeking out. <laughs> he was working on some concoction he called a magic bullet. <laughs> and then he said, someday that guy who I'm going to kill is going to be Trump's vice president. <laughs> <laughs> After what I'm sure he loves saying, putzing around for a while with a little crew he put together doing a couple holdups around LA a week. Mickey really learned a lot from Bugsy and assumed the role of a mafioso at his side. Like he learned to how to be a gangster. Yeah. Well, not just like a thug, but like a gangster. A gangster with a suit who has yeah. to answer the phone every right. once in a while. <laughs> and a third hat. <laughs> <laughs> he started running gambling rings, drug dealing rings, sex work rings. He met a gambler named Nick the Greek, who he'd meet regularly at the Brown Derby, who introduced Mickey to the world of horse racing. And within three years, he was the bookie king of the West Coast, wow. Mickey Cohen. He was also behind a lot of crooked labor unions and is believed to be the guy who first linked the Teamsters union to the mob. Wow, really? Yeah, they think it, that was Mickey Cohen's, that was his like like Louisiana purchase. <laughs> <laughs> he also had in his pocket pretty much every government worker in every city in LA County. And if you want to learn more about all the cities in LA County, go to our TikTok at LA Meekly. He owned the guy in Gardena. He owned the guy in the... <laughs> what the, about the little... guy in Van Nuys? What about the guy in San Pedro? Uh, now we're going to do a video. All the places Mickey Cohen had a, had a finger in the government. Uh, he fingered the government? What's that mean? He basically owned every police officer in LA County. The police chief of Burbank bought a yacht with all the money he was taking from Mickey Cohen. He named it the Mickey, uh, which uh, everyone assumed, oh, you must be talking about Disney because they're going to move here one day, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's that's it. the Mickey. That's it. Which came in handy because he was still arrested fairly often, but was always released shortly after. He was regularly beating down people in public who didn't go along with his plans and gambling. So naturally he'd be arrested, but he had so many cops, lawyers, and judges on his payroll that nothing would stick. And the few times it would, the DA would just dismiss it. He was so well connected that we have him to thank for helping get Richard Nixon elected to Congress. <laughs> That's one of the things of like, oh, okay, it, went, it goes that far down. <laughs> These connections really came in handy on May 16th, 1945, when he killed his rival, Maxi Shaman, or Shaman? Shaman? But the DA ruled it was self-defense. Uh, Mickey later said it cost him $40,000 to escape that charge. Wow. Uh, it's expensive to Oh, defend poor you. I had to pay $40,000 and not go to prison. <laughs> for the rest of your life. Yeah. In so self-defense, I cut his head off. <laughs> and then uh, showed his body to his family and kids. <laughs> uh, it was all in self-defense. Yeah, so I that they would, roses. So that they wouldn't come from <laughs> But this incident was also the first time his name appeared in newspapers, mm. which would become a very important part of his story later. Uh, he had rackets going all over town. His first card room was at Santa Monica in West he ran a full-on casino called the La Brea Social Club at La Brea and Beverly. He had a bookie shop a block away from Warner Brothers Studios. He also ran the Dinkara Stock Farm in that horsey area of Burbank at Mariposa and Riverside, right across wow. the street from the park we recorded in during wow. the pandemic. Really? The, the other parts of the pandemic. Right. The, some of the more harrowing parts the, of the, the pandemic. The real part of the pandemic. <laughs> Not this fake part. I mean, COVID used to be real. Now it's fake. <laughs> now that everyone's getting it, it's fake. But when nobody <laughs> no. knew it was getting it? That's yeah. when it was real. Now that I had it like a month and a half ago, I don't believe it. <laughs> I wasn't sick. So this place, the Dinkara stock farm was a horse ranch that if this red light was on in the driveway, you would walk down this little hill to this stable that had a casino. In it. Oh my 
God. And uh, of course, the dealer was a, a beautiful stallion, <laughs> a Mr. Ed level uh, disguise. Wires in his face. Yeah. They were constantly shoving things uh, <laughs> in his behind so that he would uh, deal blackjack. Um, Hit me. Oh, God. Oh, God. Not again. <laughs> and of course, he helped Bugsy Siegel set up the Flamingo Hotel in Las Vegas right. and got Las Vegas started. But he also had a ton of regular seeming businesses around town that, of course, were all fronts. Mm-hmm. As you remember, he owned the Cafe Trocadero on the Sunset Strip. Right. Also, the Continental Cafe at 7823 Santa Monica. He financed Slapsy Maxi's Cafe, mm-hmm. which is now the New Beverly, right? I believe it is, yeah. yeah or at least next door to it. He was behind that. He ran a club called the Rum Boogie near Hollywood and Highland. It seems he owned the Club Flamingo, which was an openly gay bar with drag shows at 1027 North La Brea. He had a party house at 9100 Hazen Drive just off Mulholland. But then he also had just regular everyday businesses that, of course, were also fronts. Uh, he had the Concrete Cota paint store <laughs> at 8109 Beverly, which is where he killed Max shaman jesus it's it's blood it, yeah. it's paint it, I mean, it was a sample i was showing him a sample of paint and then he just died yeah he just died and then a big wound showed up in his head it's the wound's fault paint got over it. the wound killed him i paid forty thousand dollars to pin this on the wound he famously had michael's exclusive haberdashery mm-hmm. which i love saying uh, yeah at 8804 sunset which was next door to where book soup now is across from the now demolished tower records right or at least gutted, uh, which is something he did to a lot of people. And all the while, Rocky and Bullwinkle watched over the whole thing. <laughs> Complicit in their silence. <laughs> the way he would have to goose Bullwinkle to get him to, to stay quiet about what he saw. Attached to the haberdashery was also courtly jewelers and a tailor, which were both owned by him. Mm-hmm. He had flower shops and gas stations. He was raking in the dough which is not a bakery he owned. He was just (laughs) raking in dough. By the mid to late 40s, he was making $80,000 a month, which today would be over a million dollars a month. And he was living every single penny of it. He was a man about town and you would see him anywhere from Kohl's, of course. They have that urinal that's like Mickey Cohen, Peter. And I'm like, oh, doesn't taste like it. Um, <laughs> this so, doesn't taste like kidney stone. <laughs> this doesn't taste like a Vander Holyfield's grandpa's ear. <laughs> he was at Largo, the Formosa, the Apple Pan, Pink's. He'd be at the Slate Brothers Comedy Club getting made fun of by Don Rickles. Walking a very tight rope, I bet. Everything I hear about Don Rickles, like whenever they talk about like everyone loved being made fun of Don Rickles, they always have to say like, even the mob, <laughs> even the mob liked it. I bet they had to pay Don Rickles like, make sure you say something nice about us. Don't bring up that his dad died of tea. <laughs> hey, anyone's here? Uh, Dad's eye of TV? Uh, yeah, hockey puck. <laughs> he tipped five to ten dollars to anybody who helped him do anything, which is a lot of money. Like, even yeah. today, if someone gave me a five dollar tip, <laughs> yeah, I'm indebted to you for the rest of my life. Did he whack somebody? Did he slit a throat? Did he send him postcards every month? <laughs> and his passion for fashion never left him. He was constantly buying Stetson hats mm-hmm. and fedoras, tailor made shoes. He would only wear a suit twice before he'd give it to his haberdashery to sell secondhand and he'd buy a new suit. And all Always taking the time to beat up Nazis whenever he saw them in the streets of LA. Good guy. That, that's one of the things of like, there's so many. Look, I'm not going to argue. No. There's a lot of bad things Mickey Cohen has done, <laughs> but he gave a lot of money to a lot of people who probably needed money. Yeah. And he would beat up Nazis. So right there, it's like, mm, Those are too good. you gotta, he's got something going for him. <laughs> he was certainly like a gangster, also like a man about town. He was. Beat he, up Nazis. He, like not he, every man about town beats up Nazis. No, Maybe no. Bruce Wayne. But. <laughs> there was one man, there was one billionaire playboy who does such a thing. Uh, but yeah, he, he was like, it's like how we always see Andy Dick. Well, not anymore, but we would always see Andy Dick 
Dick everywhere. Yeah. Like, imagine if that was Mickey Cohen. Imagine uh, Andy Dick killed several people and we all knew about it. <laughs> yeah, imagine. <laughs> imagine <laughs> if Andy Dick killed several people for, I don't know, Brian Singer. <laughs> He shared all of this wealth and clout with his wife, LaVon Cohen, nay Weaver, who he married in 1940. She was always described as an actress, but it seems she was, in reality, she was a former sex worker because okay. I kept reading that, like, she's an actress, she's an actress. And one person was like, yeah, she's an actress. And I tried looking her up on IMDb and there's nothing. <laughs> but then as we know- What's a guy's names? Does that mean? <laughs> all these movies about doing <laughs> cities. I don't remember these do cities stories. <laughs> but then as we know from my Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle segment, things changed in a big way on June 20th, 1947. Bugsy Siegel was mysteriously killed in his girlfriend's house in Beverly Hills in the, the Bermuda Triangle. Once again, the, the wound wounds. is wound. <laughs> Someone's gonna arrest this wound. <laughs> and now Mickey Cohen's boss slash mentor was gone and surprise, he was furious. Yeah. When he found out what happened, he went straight to the hotel where he believed the killer to be hiding, shot a gun into the ceiling, <sighs> screaming for him to meet him outside, but he had to leave before the cops showed up. Uh, he also lashed out with violence at other rival mobs, which put him on a lot of people's kill lists after this. Yeah. Whether or not this was all just performative rage and he himself was actually behind Bugsy's murder, we are never really going to know. But what this did mean was that with his old boss gone, Mickey Cohn was now the king of the LA underworld at age 34. I can't imagine a 30-year-old running things. Jack Dragon makes more sense. He was like, what, like 60s? Yeah, 900 years yeah, old. Yeah, 900 Well, he was vampire. a vampire. Yeah. Having success in your early to mid-30s, who has that? What is this? The 90s? <laughs> One of his first orders of business was being approached by representatives of some of the other East Coast syndicates who told them their organizations would offer him, here's some more air quotes you can't see, protection in return for most of his profits in Los Angeles. He obviously refused them, which led to the so-called Sunset Wars over control of the LA rackets, which you and I couldn't find too many specifics about that. We just like it, it, we just have to take the mafia's word of like, yeah, there was the Sunset wars yeah i bet there's a whole book dedicated to it but on the internet and everyone's articles it's sort of like well he a lot of people shot at mickey cohen and they didn't kill him makes him the fidel castro of valley mob at mobhistory.org they had nothing and that's a dark web. They have everything. <laughs> mob history dot we don't exist. <laughs> there were violent mob turf skirmishes fairly regularly in LA around this time, not only between Mickey and the East Coast guys, but also amongst his local rivals. Mm -hmm. It's suspected that Mickey was the guy who on February 9th, 1948 at 6.45 p.m. had a couple guys drive to 312 South Elm Drive in Beverly Hills with a box in their hand. They rang the doorbell and who should open it but our old friend, Tony the Hat Cornero. Oh. One of the guys said, here, Tony, it's a package for you and then shot him five times. Yes, they certainly did, didn't they? <laughs> oh, my Uber Eats. <laughs> oh, Thai food, thank God. I love the banana pudding from Magnolia. Oh, yowza. And that's what Tony Cornero sounded like. Cornero survived this, but Mickey's intention of consolidating his local power worked because Cornero soon left LA for good. But his main nemeses were the Dragnas. Yep. Jack Dragna, the Holy Trinity, the man who is three. Who and I, probably his brother too. Yeah, yeah, both of them. They kind of worked together. He was jealous that Mickey was now the top dog in LA. So he decided to try to take Mickey out of the picture. One of the major attempts happened in 1948 at his beloved haberdashery. Do you know about this story? No, I don't think 
think I do. So Mickey was in there doing some business when three gunmen walked in, including Jimmy the Weasel Fratiano, who was a known Dragna man. Oh boy. And they opened fire. Lucky for Mickey Cohen, he was an extreme germaphobe and had serious OCD. So he used to wash his hand 50 times a day. Ooh. And at the moment these gunmen walked into the haberdashery, he was in the bathroom washing his hands. <laughs> and when he heard the bullets, he climbed onto the sink to wait it out. And when he came out, one of his bodyguards, Hookie Rothman, had his head blown off oh and the gunmen were gone. God. So his life was saved because he was washing his hands. And when I told Melissa about like, Mickey Cohen did this and this, and you wouldn't believe it, he would wash his hands 50 times a day. And she's like, oh, maybe it's like a Lady Macbeth thing. And he's oh, right. like, huh, huh, that's a really... Huh. That's pretty well the point. <laughs> so after this, the haberdashery was outfitted with bulletproof steel doors and 24-hour security, and Mickey got himself a bulletproof Cadillac. <laughs> All welcome. All are welcome. And I don't remember where I heard this. I'm pretty sure I heard it. Or if I heard this. Or if I heard this or I dreamt it. I'm pretty sure I heard a story somewhere that at one of the nightclubs on Sunset, an actress, I don't know if it was Jane Mansfield or not, got in a car and left and realized it wasn't their car yeah. and came back and the valet was like oh and there's like that gave away Mickey Cohen's car I have a story similar to that okay. actually in our listener question thing which ties into oh. it but my story ends a little differently okay okay but maybe this has happened multiple times to him oh I thought it was my bulletproof Cadillac no. <laughs> that's not my Tommy gun my Tommy gun's got a different handle on it but he could still be shot at when he wasn't in the haberdashery or in his car which is what happened on July 20th 1949 outside of Sherry's restaurant the big one at 9039 Sunset Boulevard. At like 3.30 in the morning. When I read that, I'm like, oh my God, what's he doing up? This isn't even the big one. Oh, that's not the big one. I mean, this is a big incident, but like yeah. worse things happened to him For that sure. we're going to get to. Mickey and a few of his guards and friends walked out of the restaurant and were shot at from across Sunset Boulevard. Which is a big street. <laughs> a very big street. Yeah. One of them like were five lanes. One of them were killed and four of them were shot, including Mickey himself. He got shot in the shoulder. He was rushed to the Queen of Angels Hospital and got huge flower arrangements sent to him every day. Some people suspected that the one shooting were off-duty LAPD officers, yeah. but it's likely it was an ordered hit again by the Dragnas. Possibly. What, uh, okay. It, it makes a look, like it honestly makes the most sense. Yeah, the, we're not. Look, Greg, this isn't the Senate here. You can, <laughs> you can admit. You tell me. You, I know you got the inside scoop just, on the Dragnas. Come on, just put your hand on the Bible and just tell me what happened. <laughs> we're not under oath here. Just touch the Bible <laughs> when you speak to me. A, a lot of websites I went to were sort of like, did he do it or did he not? We'll never know. I'm like, he, it makes the most sense. Yeah, like who, he hated him. Bugsy was not here to stop him. <laughs> Dragnas would never do but that. But then also like just knowing the cops, like I think he had sheriff's deputies on his side, but I think LAPD was trying to kill him. Something like that. The official stance of the LAPD, yes, they are against Mickey Cohen, but like, have you seen the LAPD? I hate making money. <laughs> Let's kill Mickey Cohen. I hate yeah. making money. I have too much money. <laughs> We can just take the money from social services. <laughs> so his attorney, Sam Rummel, was even killed in Laurel Canyon in 1950, which was the same guy we talked about in the Gardena episode, the lawyer who got, I think we talked about, he got shot in the neck with a shotgun. Right, 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 <laughs> that, right. That was Mickey Cohen's lawyer. Jeez. So clearly trying to get him out in the wild wasn't working. So why not try getting him where he laid his violent little head at night? Mickey lived in Beverly Hills for a while, but he was a known entity. So anyone who came or went from his house was constantly being stopped by the Beverly Hills cops. 
Eddie Murphy every single time. <laughs> so he decided to have a new house built for him in Brentwood at 513 Moreno Avenue near the Brentwood Country Mart. They described it as a mansion, but it looked quite modest in my opinion. But the piece de resistance was that since Mickey never drank or smoked or did drugs, he had his own personal soda fountain in his house. Oh my God. The things you can relate to him to are stacking up. It runs in the family. Nah. Germaphobe <laughs> hates Nazis, has a soda fountain in his own home. What's the problem? Five foot five, vicious boxer, <laughs> trading newspapers for hot dogs at a very young age. So it wasn't entirely a safe haven because even during its construction, the LAPD got wise to it and had a bug planted in it while it was being built, but they found it pretty hey, quickly. Hey, hey, bugs were legal back then. <laughs> but they found it quickly because the gardener accidentally cut the wire. Nah. What, like, what the hell is this? There's a bug in the garden. Yes, yeah, so? Yeah. Well, Mickey. Mickey. Then the Dragnas tried a bug of their own in the form of a bomb <laughs> that they placed under the house, but the fuse failed and a guard saw the wire. But both these groups were more successful on their second attempts. The Dragnas tried once again. This was, this is the big one. Allegedly the Dragnas, but from no. the Mickey perspective, this was the Dragnas. I, I, I believe you. I'm laughing that he's the Fidel Castro of LA crime. <laughs> so many attempts to kill him and they're all like, the gardener cut the wire. The fuse didn't go off from the bomb. Like it's all like, well, Acme Brad bomb. <laughs> Did I tell you about his road trip through Peru? <laughs> was that Fidel Castro or Che Guevara? I don't know. Or both of them? Possibly. Or was that E2 Mama Tambien? <laughs> So there was a woman with them. Jack Dragna and Mickey Cohen went on a motorcycle trip with an older woman <laughs> through Peru. E2 Mafia Tambien. The Dragnas tried once again to bomb his house on February 6, 1950, and this time it worked. They used two fuses this time, ah. and this bomb blew up its 30 sticks of dynamite that were allegedly packed personally by Jack Dragna, just like it promised to do. It blew up. It blew up not only his bedroom, but all his neighbor's windows shattered, and it was heard 10 miles away. Way, this explosion. What what would the the LAPD do this? This is a nod <laughs> to them blowing up that neighborhood. Anyways, what, what, was, it, what was it? The Fourth of July, <laughs> leading up to the Fourth of July in East LA. It was a crater twenty feet wide. Oh, it, it left a crater twenty feet God. wide and six feet deep. The problem was the bomb was placed right under his reinforced safe, so the blast was mostly directed down. So while it destroyed his bedroom, it only destroyed his bedroom. He was actually in his wife's bedroom at the time. Scandalous. What was going i know <laughs> why don't we push the bedrooms together tonight um, our twin bedrooms so he was not no one got hurt jesus Christ. except for jack dragna's reputation his reputation as a great bomb maker <laughs> next he drew a tunnel on the side yeah. of a, a highway this will work he, it has to work he cut out a hole in the sand <laughs> so after this he had searchlights installed on his roof and put in an armored door and 24-hour security around his home his neighbors tried to have the city council evict him from living in brent would. Meanwhile, with his house blown open, the LAPD gangster squad took the opportunity to place a new wireless bug inside of his house. Like, it's open. Like they came dressed as like carpenters and yeah. masons. They came dressed as smoke. and they, <laughs> like, they had a guy cover his clothes in ammonia to ward off his dog and slip in. If the dog bites you, the dog will faint. <laughs> and slip into the wreckage one night and put the bug in his closet. Uh, one of Mickey's disgruntled neighbors allowed the gangster squad to use his garage as a monitoring base next door. The problem with... May, may, may I? Yeah. The balls on that neighbor. Hey. Your neighbor's Mickey Cohen and you're like inviting the cops in? Like... As somebody who's had a bad neighbor, <laughs> I get it. If it was Mickey Cohen, I might think twice.
Likewise, though, <laughs> the problem with this wireless bug was that it messed up his TV reception. But when Mickey called a TV repair person to come see what was happening, the gangster squad intercepted this guy and enlisted him to plant a new bug inside the TV itself. In all, Mickey had 11 assassination attempts on his life, but nothing stopped him. And most importantly, the press loved him. Yeah. All of this murder and attempted murder, I have got to take this guy to lunch. <laughs> he became a local celebrity. He was being written about in the legitimate and tabloid papers all mm -hmm. around LA. Hedda Hopper wrote about him. A local paper called him public nuisance number one. Uh, Life magazine called him an exhibitionist hoodlum, which sounds <laughs> kinky. Rave reviews for Mickey Cohen. Yeah. People would come up to him for autographs. Could you imagine? <laughs> Imagine going up to Mickey Cohen Mickey for it. Cohen. Ooh, ooh. So I Clark Gable, Clark Gable. <laughs> oh, Mickey Cohen. Bloodthirsty gangster? <laughs> Everything he touches turns to murder? Can I have your autograph? So I approached his bulletproof Cadillac like anyone else <laughs> yeah. would. And I tapped him on the shoulder <laughs> from behind. From behind. <laughs> I slowly moved past all his uh, guards, yeah. <laughs> all wearing brass knuckles. And I'm, I did a joke. Yeah. I'm like, I'm the cops. His guards picked me up by the collar so gently to show him <laughs> if he knew me. So he was a genuine celebrity about town and he loved it. Yeah. He loved the attention and he loved talking to the press and creating even more controversy. He told a newspaper that he was actually reducing crime in the city. He said, all the types of people who would under previous conditions be busting people's heads in dark alleys and breaking into respectable homes for robbery are now on my payroll and don't have to do that sort of thing to make a living. I've been a boon to this town and I'll tell you something, despite the attitude of the police, there are a lot of people beginning to realize that fact. Another endearing thing about him is he was so anti-LAPD. Yeah, you gotta give it to him for that. Uh, knowing his enemy was Parker, Chief Parker. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we did an episode about what made Parker bad. You're like, kind of Mickey's on. I'll take the worst of two evils. <laughs> the only thing he was ashamed of was his uncouth bearing. So he hired a tutor to teach him how to read and also how to be polite. And he used this to ingratiate himself into the Hollywood elite. Like he turned himself into a charming man. I would be so terrified to be Mickey Cohen's teacher. No, Mickey, you, you got it wrong again. I'm so sorry. And uh, yeah. knuckles breaking. Uh, you're using the salad fork <laughs> on your veal, Mickey. Uh, you conjugated the verb wrong. I, everyone does it. You know what? They changed, they changed it this week. They changed it. So you got it right. Any fork you want to use uh, with a fork like in his eye. Which one of these is the eyeball fork? He was friends with everyone in the Rat Pack. No surprise. No surprise. He saved Robert Mitchum's career by getting him out of a marijuana possession charge, and he quickly took advantage of Hollywood as well. So he funded a new tabloid called Hollywood Nightlife that was sent to all the top movie executives in town that would dish dirt on celebrities that his henchmen would dig up. Oh, wow. What would happen, his people, Mickey's people, would go to these celebrities and tell them either they pay to advertise in his magazine or he'd publish all their secrets in it and ruin their careers. So he did this to Frank Sinatra. He did this to Judy Garland, who actually knew Mickey and would go to him asking for help with the people trying to blackmail her, not realizing she was asking for help from the guy who was blackmailing her. I'll think about it, Judy. Uh, go ask the other Mickey, you know. <laughs> he said, like, I felt a little bad about that later in life. Like, yeah, this little girl who was being abused by everybody was asking you for help and you were abusing her. <laughs> oh, you felt bad about that? Great guy. So there was a sex tape of Lana Turner and his bodyguard slash her boyfriend, Johnny Stampinato, that he was circulating, Mickey Cohen, which turned into a whole ordeal when Stampinato turned up dead in Lana Turner's home. Oh, uh, it must have been a gang hit. The, no. Lana and the police claimed that her 13-year-old daughter stabbed him to death for allegedly abusing her mom, which Mickey was furious about because he didn't want his friend's name 
name to be smeared. So in retaliation, he leaked a bunch of love letters between Turner and Stampinato to Aggie Underwood oh. to prove that she actually loved him. And also, I think he suspected it was actually Lana Turner who killed him. Uh, it was a messy situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that was messy. Best relationship I've ever been in. <laughs> but all this glory and Lana Turner smearing hit a major speed bump in 1950 with the United States Senate Special Committee to Investigate Crime in Interstate Commerce in Washington, D.C., a.k.a. the Kefauver Committee Kefauver, in Washington, D.C. This was a huge nationwide crackdown on organized crime and was kind of portrayed in The Godfather 2. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. This committee looked into Mickey Cohen and, and busted him on the only way you can get a mobster in trouble— tax evasion. Mickey denied it saying tax evasion was the only crime in my whole life of which I can say I am absolutely innocent. (laughs) Regardless, he got sentenced to four years in prison in June 1951. He had to sell off all his belongings to pay off his debt and ran big ads for his haberdashery that you could come there to buy Mickey Cohen's clothes, which I'd be there. That's like that day's Alex Trebek's (laughs) estate sale. There's all this red paint on this shirt. There's all these five foot five (laughs) stocky men outside of the haberdashery. Uh, Yeah, (laughs) this must be the paint from the paint store. <laughs> he even sold off the book and movie rights to his life to pay for this. LaVon was also indicted in this, but her charges were dropped and Mickey ended up spending three and a half years at McNeil Island Penitentiary in Washington. He said in there with him, "What th- this story has no place anywhere, but it's so weird. I had to tell it and I had to, I'm going to change the word he used, but he said that there was an Inuit in the okay. prison with him. He said there was one fella, an Inuit, who was doing time for eating up his wife. Since when is that a federal offense, I asked the warden. The way it actually happened was the couple was stranded on an ice cake and the husband got so hungry, he killed her and consumed her. I talked to this Inuit. He had no feeling on the subject. (laughs) That story has no place in history, but I'm fascinated by it. Uh, He's a Donner Party apologist? (laughs) What's the crime? Show me the crime. Yeah, Louis Kiesberg ate all those kids up? What's the big deal? They didn't have jobs. (laughs) So what, in this country you can lock people up for having a nice meal? Is she complaining? No. What's her side of the story? Finally, she made him a good dinner. Am I right? <laughs> Beats her meatloaf. <laughs> So, oh, Mickey Cohen's weird. He's a very weird guy. So now it's 1955. And 1955? (laughs) Somebody washes his hands 50 times a day and is okay with, like, like, he ate his wife. uh, Did you cook her properly? So now it's 1955 Uh and Mickey Cohen's out of jail. Marty McFly comes to town and he's got a weird vest on. Mickey Cohen finds this sports almanac. (laughs) That's how Mickey Cohen gets his money back. Yeah. He opens up a casino. Yeah. Yeah. It fits. Um, So, Mickey Cohen's out of jail, 1955, and back on the streets. He moved into an apartment at 10599 Wilshire, but as he put it, he was a changed man. Mm -hmm. He did a lot of work with charity. He gave talks to kids to stay in school and out of trouble. He even flew to New York City to go to a revival show at Madison Square Garden by his old friend, Billy Graham. Mm -hmm. So he was a religious man. The the newspapers floated out the idea. Ties to Billy Graham. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, surprise. (laughs) The, The newspapers floated out the idea that Mickey Cohen was going to convert and become a born-again Christian and his crimes were over. And then his probation ended. Mickey Cohen was back at it. Jeez. He was free to be the mob boss of Los oh Angeles my. again. He was like, I'm never, never going to convert. 
<laughs> he, he said that Billy Graham paid him $10,000 to be in the audience at that show as a publicity stunt. Wow. Mickey Cohen didn't care about... He loved being Jewish. <laughs> he loved it. He loved every part of it. He what? Thought... His biggest crime was being Jewish? <laughs> so he was back running all his old rackets in no time and was back in the public eye as a media darling. Yeah. He was very vocal now about prison reform, which I thought, wow, that's great. But then it turned out his main issue was about how much gay sex there was in prison <laughs> and that it shouldn't be tolerated. <laughs> There should be a prison just for that. I'm not against it, but you shouldn't be mixing it in. In the straight men's prison, there should also be women. <laughs> yeah, I was like, wow, good for you, Mickey Cohen. And then I digged a little deeper. I was like, Ugh. The prison industrial complex is a problem because sometimes I just want to take a shower. I'm not trying to flirt. I'm dirty. <laughs> I got to take 50 showers a day. <laughs> this isn't me trying to come on to people. I'm just, I, I have a problem. So he was also still, of course, very anti-LAPD, which right. was great to listen to. <laughs> he was being watched pretty much every step he he took when he got back to LA and they would take him aside and give him a ticket for any little thing. Like if he jaywalks, he's getting a yeah, ticket. Yeah, yeah. Any you threw your milkshake container on the floor, you're getting a ticket. That was actually recycling. You meant to throw it in the recycling. Yeah. One. I gotta give you a ticket. <laughs> We're taking you downtown yeah. to the DA you own. <laughs> he told the newspapers that the LAPD was so focused on him that they were letting all the other criminals get away. Okay. The high point of these opinions happened in 1957 when he was on a TV interview with Mike Wallace, yeah. where he admitted on TV to killing upwards of one person <laughs> in self-defense and then went on a tirade against LAPD Chief Will William Parker, calling him a known alcoholic and a sadistic degenerate. He's the, the, I love the phrase known alcoholic. No, Every, everyone knows about it. Why are we trying to hide it? I love a gangster who doesn't drink is like, this known alcoholic it's over here. And derelict. <laughs> Uh, deviant. It, it, it's just like every single situation of Mickey Cohen is like an explosive situation. Yeah. And that's why he's, he was so much fun to he's me. He's literally like a Joe Pesci yes. in any gangster movie yeah. type. Like he's, he's like, just the, like the worst Joe Pesci role. <laughs> At same size. <laughs> He eventually moved back into Brentwood at 705 South Barrington Avenue into another place that he had a personal ice cream fountain and actually opened up an ice cream shop near there at 11719 San Vicente filled with all his favorite ice creams and his favorite candy. Toblerone. Whoa. Uh, it was, uh, of course, a front, but probably his favorite front. I, I read one story. I forget it was who, a front for cookies. Go ahead. <laughs> we make cookies in the back. <laughs> well, what does that mean? I take him back there. It's just like it's just, it's just snickerdoodles everywhere. There was one story. I forget who it was. It was some actress of the time who like, she was like, I went to this ice cream shop with my daughter and Mickey Cohen was sitting in the corner and I walked in and he yelled rum raisin and I left. <laughs> There's a sale on rum raisin. I got to get out of here. But not in front of my daughter. <laughs> in 1958, LaVon divorced him for being emotionally abusive. Okay. Uh, he then started dating around with burlesque queens with names like Tempest Storm, mm, Beverly, Tempest Storm great. Beverly Hills, and Candy Bar. Oh, two R's, Candy Bar. Yeah. AKA Juanita Dale Slusher, which is just as good of a stage name. Yeah. Uh, those two, him and Candy Bar, were a big tabloid couple. And you'll be interested to hear a weird conspiracy involvving her in a little bit. Okay. Cue the JFK. Impression. <laughs> Warm it up. Uh, red leather, yellow leather, toot the tin trumpet, Tommy in time. Around this time, he also downsized his life and rented a house in, wouldn't you believe it, Van Nuys. Wow. At 13841. At 138, how dare you? Sherman Oaks North, Greg. <laughs> 13841 Wyandotte to save some money. The house is still there. It's very weird. This was also around the time of my favorite part of this story for many reasons. December 2nd, 1959, at 1130 p.m., Mickey Cohen was at a big Celebrity hotspot Italian restaurant called Rondelli's at 13359 Ventura Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, which is now Wood and Water, right next to the Menchies, very near to where someone on this podcast wow. lives. It was a restaurant right there. It was like Libera 
Karachi went there, like all of the Valley people, celebrities went, which was all of them. So that's one part of the story I like. The second part is that Mickey would always bring his bulldog, Mickey Jr. there, <laughs> put him in his lap and tie a napkin around his neck and feed him a plate of linguine. Oh my God. That's my second favorite part of this story. But As a dog owner who has to take him to restaurants, that's not that weird. <laughs> my dog is more of a Capellini dog, but I, I can see why you he find that funny. He likes the rosé fine, but he's kind of a Chardonnay fellow. Go ahead. Rover's A. Uh, but on the night in question, Mickey was eating there when a rival bookie came in furious about something Mickey had done. He came in, he dragged Mickey's friend, who was an entertainer, but they wouldn't say who. They dra- He dragged this guy out of a phone booth and started beating him. I, it was Milton Berle. <laughs> he had to keep pulling. <laughs> He dragged for a very long time. <laughs> when does it? It's like a, <laughs> is this one of those clown phone booths? I grabbed them by the wrong part. <laughs> this phone cable is so. Oh. <laughs> oh no! Then this guy went up to Mickey's table to berate Mickey, and while he was yelling, someone at the table, most likely Mickey, shot this guy between the eyes from a gun he had under the table. The entire restaurant cleared out. When the cops got there, there was just a body on the floor. A little bit later, Mickey showed up holding his bulldog and said to the cops, "My third favorite thing in this story." What happened? I was in the bathroom washing my hands. (laughs) The bullet has his signature on it. What happened? I was compulsively acting. What was going on? This bullet looks like it has dog linguine all over it. The dog is like wiping his mouth. No, that's just, that's pasta. Different kind of that's, pasta. Yeah, that's not linguine, that's tortellini. <laughs> Classic Valley story. Classic Valley story. So casually arrogant. That the just... confidence of this man to be like, what's this dead body doing here? I was in the bathroom, you know, for the last two well, hours. <laughs> anyways, I got to pay my tab. I mean, uh, someone's tab. Yeah, he's just throwing $100 yeah, bills at the cops. So this restaurant never reopened after this. No. But then came the second and biggest speed bump in the Mickey Cohen story. They get rum raisin back. <laughs> rum raisin! <laughs> Robert F. Kennedy, the, rum, oh, ra- the yeah. rum raisin of the Kennedy family. <laughs> How dare you? He's the mint uh, chocolate chip uh, of the yeah. Kennedy family. <laughs> he's, he's not quite chocolate malted grunge, but he'll do. <laughs> As the U.S. Attorney General, RFK was hell-bent on taking down organized crime in this country. So yet again, Mickey Cohen was in the crosshairs. Also being investigated in this campaign were a New Orleans mob boss. This is the guy, uh, Carl. Carlos Marcello and Jimmy Hoffa. This time, Mickey Cohen got nailed yet again for the only thing you can get a mobster for tax evasion for a second time. Dude, you gotta just pay this. Like, you have the money. Just pay some of your taxes. Yeah, like, you have the money. It's fine. He was convicted of 13 counts of tax evasion and owed $160,000 in back taxes, which today is over $1.5 million. He had a great lineup of witnesses called to testify against him, including Robert Mitchum, Jerry Lewis, and Red Skelton. I would love to see that show. Testify against him? Not like they didn't turn it. Like, they, they, for some reason, they were involved and they had to be like, yeah, I guess yeah, I saw I guess. Mickey take all this cash. I thought it was just like Monopoly money. <laughs> I thought he was just feeding his dog. Yeah, let- I thought it was lettuce. I thought it was wads of lettuce. <laughs> Wasn't Abraham Lincoln on all the lettuce? <laughs> so he broke Al Capone's record and was sentenced on July 1st, 1961 to 15 years Jeez. in prison and was sent to Alcatraz on July 28th. You're kidding. The weird conspiracy sidebar here is that his girlfriend, Candy Barr, used to date Jack Ruby back in Chicago oh. and 
hours after club. hours after Jack Ruby killed Lee Harvey Oswald, Candy Bar was brought in for questioning, and Mickey Cohen's lawyer Melvin Belly ended up defending Jack Ruby. Wow, make of that what you will. I have no idea. Back to the Rock. <laughs> Mickey Cohen is now a resident of Alcatraz, <laughs> where he worked in the clothing room and reportedly kept a very neat cell, but was a hoarder as well. He went to temple services. He read a lot, which was something he could do now. Yeah. And most pointedly, he always followed the rules. However, after only 82 days on October 17th, he became the only prisoner of Alcatraz ever to be bailed out. Wow. He got bailed out of Alcatraz. His bond was signed by a member of the ever infallible Supreme Court, Earl Warren, bailed him out of- Whoa, (laughs) Earl Warren, who attacked all the gambling ships? Earl Warren, by the way, who wrote the Rowan Report on the JFK's assassination. I don't know what to make of any of this, but that's what happened. Weird, very weird, weird. No wonder people think literally everybody killed JFK, because weird stuff like that keeps popping up and people are like, what the hell does that mean? Candy bar? Yeah. Candy bar was seen at exactly 2.45 getting a book from the book depository in the young adult section. There had to have been a second dog eating Lumbini. <laughs> but how, wait a minute. Lee Harvey Oswald was washing his hands at the time. <laughs> I might have shot the cop in Dallas on the street, but I was washing my hands at the time of the JFK assassination. <laughs> he was then sent back to Alcatraz on May 14th, 1962 and then transferred the remainder of his sentence to a federal prison in, it, in Atlanta. Atlanta. Oh, I'm turning into my mom. Atla- <laughs> Atlanta. Uh, yeah, Set up straight. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I guess his bail didn't take, or oh, they were okay. like, what, what is this? No, you're yeah. back in jail. Earl Warren's not a real guy. Who? <laughs> this was where his life took a permanent turn for the worse on August 14th, 1963, in jail in Atlanta. Mickey was being taught radio and TV repair, maybe to make sure he couldn't get bugged by the gangster squad <laughs> again, when some random prisoner from another part of the compound jumped not jumped. He's not, what's that guy? Not Jack the Ripper, uh, but the other guy. Oh, Spring Hill Jack. Spring Hill Jack. <laughs> they finally nailed him and he's in prison, he's in, prison in Atlanta. But they let him keep all the stuff. <laughs> they thought he could only jump over 11 foot walls. <laughs> he can only jump in England. Guys, we're in San Francisco. <laughs> the conversion rate is different. <laughs> Catch up as high here. So this guy climbed, not jumped, a 12 foot wall to get to where Mickey was, picked up a lead pipe and beat legendary mob boss Mickey Cohen into a coma. Oh my God. They had to give him brain surgery to save his life and he stayed in a coma for two weeks before waking up alive, but he was now permanently paralyzed partially and needed a cane to walk for the rest of his life. Mickey had no idea who this guy was. He said it was some lunatic. Never knew him, never saw him. Can you imagine them putting some lunatic in there with normal people? (laughs) Not wrong. Uh, He sued the US government for $10 million for allowing this to happen and he won, wow. but he only got $100,000, which the IRS immediately took to pay off part of his back taxes. Fair. He ended up only serving 11 years of his sentence and was released from jail in 1972. He moved to 1014 Westgate in Brentwood, and Frank Sinatra gave him $25,000 to get him back on his feet. Different expression for somebody yeah, who's a walk with a cane. His, his back, back on his, on his cane. cane. Yeah. He basically just went on a press tour for the rest of his life. Okay. He was giving interviews in newspapers. He was interviewed on TV. He was on Merv Griffin. He published an autobiography called Mickey Cohen, In My Own Words, in 1975, the profits of which the IRS took. He had been friends with William Randolph Hearst, of course. Who wasn't? So when the whole Patty Hearst thing happened, Mickey offered to the Hearst family to track her down using his contacts, and he actually found her in Cleveland and offered to get her back, but he warned them it was going to be violent. So the Hearst said no, and that ended William Randolph Hearst said no. William Randolph Hearst was long dead, but whoever his his son was was like, no. That's not what our family 
family is about anymore. Oh, oh, by the way, I just wanted to jump in earlier, but not to slow you down, but the IRS wrote the foreword for his book. Go ahead. Did you know that? The IRS wrote this the foreword? <laughs> we deserve this book. <laughs> Mickey Cohen, thank you so much. <laughs> and this was just kind of his life now. He wasn't quite the same either physically or mentally after what happened in prison. And his days of being a mob boss were over. He was the mob equivalent of like a Hollywood Squares contestant. Oh, yeah. And might have been also been on Hollywood Squares. I don't know. But he always stuck to his motto of anything to make a buck and always maintained, I didn't kill anyone that didn't deserve killing in the first place. And he's kind of right. Like, okay. that's one of the things of where I'm like, he's not that bad of a guy. But then I think about like, he was human trafficking. Right. He was drugs and gambling money ruined so many people's lives. Like yeah, 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 people, yeah. vulnerable people's lives. Right, right, right. I, I, I hurt people in the long run, like yeah. in the roundabout way, <laughs> but I never directly yeah, killed I anybody. I never yeah. hit a woman, but my associates yeah. did. In the mid 70s, he started having stomach problems and was diagnosed oh, with no. an ulcer that turned out to actually be stomach cancer, which oh. is the only other way than tax fraud to get a mob boss. <laughs> Mickey Cohen died on July 29th, 1976 at the UCLA hospital at age 62. He's buried at the Hillside Memorial Park Cemetery, which is the one you see off the 405 near the Fox Hills Mall. Oh, right. So go grab yourself a Randy's Donut and sprinkle a few sprinkles on the grave of a man who doesn't really deserve much respect, but would probably love the sprinkles. <laughs> <laughs> Make sure to keep his gravestone very clean. He would have liked that yeah, very much. It gets washed 50 times a day. <laughs> I, I'm always curious about like, who's that guy in the shadows now who's running everything? But it's probably yeah, the it's, Mexican it's, mafia. Yeah, and it's just the LAPD. It's, <laughs> it's probably yeah. MS-13 or whatever. It's Gus, it's Gus Fring from yeah. <laughs> So we have a listener question. I never told you about the you listener didn't. question because this one actually, we got this a few months ago. It actually relates to what I was just talking about. Oh, okay. So I was like, this is perfect. So this is from our Patreon supporter, Chriselle, aka Cry oh, Shell. Yeah. Chriselle the Shell with a listener question. <laughs> what happened to Tuffy Cohen, Mickey Cohen's Boston Terrier, after Mickey went to jail the first time? I just finished reading L.A. Noir. Thanks, Greg. And they just stopped mentioning Tuffy <laughs> after Mickey went to prison. I assume he stayed with Mickey's wife, but I want to know how he lived out the rest of his days, if anyone knows. Is he in the L.A. Pet Cemetery? I would love to know what happened to Mickey Jr., the bulldog as well, but the book didn't talk about him enough for me to completely fall in love with him. <laughs> Tuffy, though, is brought up a lot. Strangely, there's not too much about Tuffy out there, especially not his day-to-day -day life, which I imagine was lavish. <laughs> he was the one that was like living in Brentwood. Right. He Tuffy was his first dog, lived in the Brentwood house that blew up. Tuffy survived. He was also Tuffy was in his wife's his wife's bedroom. <laughs> she Tuffy. Uh, he helped make the bug they placed in his TV useless because he was barking all the time. Oh, nice. Way to go, Tuffy. But I did find out that Tuffy did stay with Lavon when Mickey went to jail and died while he was in jail. Oh. Uh, no idea where he's buried, probably the East River. Mickey Jr., the bulldog, came into the picture when Tuffy was older. So there was an overlap of these two. Right, which is how you're supposed to do that. Yeah, to transition. muffle the grief. Yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> uh, I don't even want to think about it. That just made me so sad. <laughs> the thought of two dogs. The thought of two dogs it just makes me so sad. <laughs> the most exciting moment in Mickey Jr.'s life was shortly, I don't know if this is the same story you might have heard, but after the Rondelli's murder, Mickey Jr. was the one eating, he loved linguine. He was uh, the uh -huh. one who ate linguine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Mickey Sr.'s car was parked outside of the cloister club on the sunset strip one night and some drunk guy stole it with mickey jr in oh, the back no. seat so when they saw what happened mickey senior jumped into his friend max bears jr's <gasps> car aka jethro yeah. from the beverly hillbillies who then sped down sunset oh after this guy going a hundred miles per hour <laughs> and the drunk guy i guess realized what he had done and drove directly to the police <laughs> 
<laughs> for sanctuary and he gave himself up and Mickey got Mickey Jr. back. That's what why, a moment in history. That is why Mickey Cohen is the most LA of right. the gangsters because he went on a high speed chase down with, Sunset with Jeffro Jeff from the Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> and Mickey was on a rocking chair on the top of the <laughs> Grandma was trying to take aim, but she, her rocking chair <laughs> yeah. wouldn't stop Whoa! rocking. <laughs> yeah. John Stampanato was, <laughs> he had a Tommy gun that would. So later in this dog's in Mickey Jr.'s life, Mickey Jr. got hit by a car no. and killed, which was suspected to be a revenge killing for the guy Mickey Sr. killed at Rondelli's in Sherman Oaks. Oh, that was awful. their theory. Uh, there was a funeral for Mickey Jr. on June 28, 1960, and he is buried at Pet Haven Cemetery in Gardena. And there's a very sad picture of Mickey Cohen no. uh, at the casket, open casket of Mickey Jr. Open casket? Open ca- yeah. I mean, they cleaned him up. It wasn't like a squished dog. Oh. It wasn't just like, why is he standing next to this box full of soup? <laughs> Like it looked like a dog was in there. That breaks my heart. But it, it's the same thing of like, oh, Hitler had to kill his dog. I'm like, eh. life is cruel. Life is cruel. Uh- and all dogs go to heaven. Just all keep that in mind. So that's uh, that's our episode on two of the big gangsters. I, this is another sort of those episodes where it could be gangsters too. Yeah, yeah. The Sonny Corleone saga or whatever they subtitled the Godfather, Godfather Three. Two, yeah, or, or the third. They like recently re-released the Godfather Three of like the Corleone saga or like the coda of the Corleone oh, story, and geez. it was like ten minutes longer. But anyway, we put in all the scenes that were really bad. Oh, you sure? <laughs> all the cutting room floor stuff <laughs> that the editor was like, we can't put this in. Now they're. Thanks for all your emails. Thank you for fighting for us. All you Godfather 3 fans out there, thank you so much. So, yeah, those are gangsters. And you're probably going to hear about more of them one day. And we're probably going to be hearing from them once this episode comes out. And knock on the door. What did you say about his haberdashery? (laughs) Did someone say rum raisin? Your house is bugged. I just wanted to confirm. Rum raisin? Yeah, your house is bugged. We somehow heard everything you said for two hours (laughs) on the internet. They're they're like 1940s gangsters that got plopped in like that where they yeah, slaps him actually at the door. Like, do you edit a lot or do you just like run it? What kind of recorded it has all these weird questions? I'm thinking about do starting you use a Audacity? podcast. <laughs> Did you, you record on a Zoom H6 or a Zoom H5? Do you use a sound gate when you try to bring down the noise, the ambient noise in the room? You know, the the, the ambient, the ambient, uh, what you call noise. Do you use a pop guy <laughs> or just a windscreen? Now, when you publish on Libsyn, is it cheaper if I use anchor.fm? Well, can this just be like a YouTube thing? You think there's enough traction on the YouTube? If I have a video on TikTok, does it convert to views or just likes? Enjoy your August. It's probably going to be miserably hot and there might be a few wildfires. A few. It might. Yeah, so we'll see you in a couple weeks for a music episode and uh, listen to our candy show. uh, Candy is dandy. Candy is dandy. Uh, So that's been yet another episode of L.A. Meekly. Burping up linguini since 2013. Dang, I'm just burped. I don't know if you hear that. Dang, I'm just burped hard. And then looked like like he looked like someone else burp, used his body to burp. He's like, what was that? The, 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 the muse speaks through me. No. Right? <laughs> I'm possessed by a demon, but it mostly just burps. I'm really guessing. <laughs> Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye.